This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Thursday to you. Is it Thursday? Wow. The week's just a flying by. And by the way, happy National Chocolate Covered Raisin Day, which I just so happen to have a bag full of them. Straight from the raisin capital of the world, Fresno, California. A little treat for you, Benjamin. And if you're a good boy, I'll give you one. One chocolate covered raisin. If you're a really good boy. And if you're not, then just sit still. I might be willing to look over your condescension. Oh, good. <laughs> for chocolate covered raisins. <gasps> condescension, is that your word of the day? Yes, it is. That's I saw a big it in a crossword this morning. You? you heard it on the radio. Yeah. Hey, good to good to have you alive and well, Ben. Thank you. You look great. Yeah. Today was bath day. <laughs> that was actually last week. Oh, <laughs> No, you look good. You look great. Hey, um, got a great show for you coming up. Soda politics. We're going to be talking about uh, the the power of the soda companies, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and some of their techniques that they use to trap you, to drink that liquidy candy, candy in a bottle. We're going to talk about... Some of their methods were the same methods of even the uh, the tobacco companies. Mm. And you will conduct your interview while sampling your own. While sampling my own beverage. <laughs> In a rival cup. Yes, I saw that. A rival of BYU. There is a heated rivalry that both schools continue to try to downplay, but it yes. lives on. Yes. And is- you walk in this radio station... Mm-hmm. With that cup. I have a son who loves that other team. Okay. I can see that. And so I have a lot of paraphernalia. I I went to the University of Utah. As did I. I know. Yeah. Full disclosure. Everyone knows this. Full disclosure. Hey, settle down, everybody. We we bleed blue. We bleed blue. Hey, um, the Obamas. Yes. They're, uh, they are in Argentina doing a little tango, and apparently it's causing a problem. Yes, yeah, some people uh, don't feel that it's appropriate for the president to be dancing the tango mm. at, the t- at this time. At he, this time because he, there was a terror attack. There was a terror attack in Brussels. Right. So because of that, then apparently the president should not be performing the tango. Well, he wasn't really performing. He was standing there as somebody else was tangoing. Yeah. He was trying to keep up. The, the, yeah, I get that. I mean, he's the president, but like you said, it, maybe this is what you're supposed to do is not let terror win. That's what we're told. If we stop our lives, then the terrorists win. I think so there's other we, reasons he shouldn't be doing the tango. Well, yeah, but they're, they're going after just the, the optics of he's having this sort of celebratory thing going on while there's something bad going on in the world. Yeah. That's, I mean, I get that. And as I was, we were talking before the show... This type of attack mm-hmm. with this type of casualty numbers, it happens quite a bit in yeah. 
in the Middle East. There's certain places where you'll hear about a car bomb. You just go, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. another 34 yeah, people? Yeah. It's just something you just move right. on with your day. No big deal. But it happens in Europe. It happens, and especially if it happens in our country, we stop and there's more shock to it. Well, bring yeah, it brings the war to, the, to our neighborhood. Now, if there was an attack in our country, Obama probably would have gone home. Many thought he should have left Cuba. They do. They and thought come after, right home. Right after Brussels. But Many thought he, they shouldn't have even gone to Cuba. Well, that. <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 you're it, not going to win. It's the same thing. It just depends who's the president. It did look awkward to see the president at a baseball game hours after the explosions in, in Brussels. Yeah. yeah. That's it's hard. And he's doing the wave and he's having a TV interview with ESPN. He's doing and, the wave with Raul Castro. Yeah. That was awkward. Maybe not on the day. Yeah. But now you're... Should he have gone and just not done the wave? I don't know. Was it the wave? It's more of the baseball game. You, again, you can't, you can't win as the president. And what do you do? This trip's already costing the United States millions and millions of dollars. So what do you do? But it's the kind of thing that needs to happen to keep relations maybe he should just, friendly between maybe countries. He should, and I don't know if he did. Did he, did he have like a... Maybe they need to have like a memorial wherever he is and have a very somber memorial moment. I don't know what you do. I mean, he's I mean, he's addressed it multiple times, press yeah. conferences. He, I watched him talk for eight, nine, ten minutes at a joint press conference with the president of Argentina. It's in his country. He didn't even speak for like 20 minutes, it seemed like, mm. the other president. And Obama's just going off on, on the questions he's <laughs> being asked. I mean, it's not like he's... Right purposely dominating so i mean it's not like he's uh, ignoring the issue you can't yeah you can't let him you go to a state dinner right in another country and they want you to dance with one of their see this is this is the paradox right the paradox is he can want to support the people of of belgium and want to help and love and care for people and let's not let him win let's just keep life going maybe you just maybe you just got to do it that way even if you offend people and the tango and the Obamas doing the tango, I mean, to me, that would have been a bucket list thing. How many people go to Argentina yeah. and do the tango? That's cool. Don't you think? That's cool. Well, and and even, even more so, you're with someone who is a professional dancer, mm-hmm. right, who knows how to tango. And this is the real deal. I mean, that's – and when you're in Cuba, he probably – that's a bucket list thing. You know, go to a game with Raul Castro and do the wave. Right. I mean, he's, and, and he's just checking off this year his bucket list. And apparently appear on a Cuban sketch comedy show. Which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, Cuba's Saturday Night Live. Or something similar. Ish. I'm not sure. Yeah, and apparently he's going to be appearing on BYU's um, Studio C. What? Yeah. Huge. Are you just making things up now? No. BYU Broadcasting, Studio C, and Barack Obama. When did that come down? Remember, 5% accuracy. Oh, you're right. Is yeah. We talked about this yesterday. The show is still 5% talking? accurate. Is he still talking? He is, but I think he had a point. Uh, a point? Just one. Yeah, about a year ago. He said yesterday this show is 5% accurate, and when it comes to comments like that, yeah, I really don't think the president's coming to the school. Honestly, I don't need Ben pointing out my- Inaccuracies? Of my jokes at certain times. All right. Can you make a note of that? We'll, we'll have that in the production meeting. We have a production meeting? See, new things every day. When did we start doing a production meeting? I really need to get into that one. It's what we do when we just sit in your office and talk for like 10 minutes. Did you hear uh, CNN is reporting Uh that uh, drug traffickers 
are buying property hmm. near the border. Well, of course. If you own the property, you can then dig a tunnel underneath, and That's the police right. don't come and try to bust you for having a drug tunnel. So we hear all this talk about a wall. And folks, have you ever heard of a tunnel? Wherever there's a wall, you can build a tunnel. Yeah. So you're going to have a really expensive wall. The gr- a great wall. Nice wall. The great wall. A the thousand wall foot ever. wall. And, uh, I don't know, a $1,000 tunnel? Well, more than that, because they put, they, they, they put air conditioning in there. There's like an electric trolley. Yeah, but that's probably 1000 bucks. No, it's more than that. Have you ever dug a tunnel? No, but I've watched... Uh, Have you ever dug a tunnel with TV Mexican shows? workers <laughs> that are in the drug trade? No. All you need is a spoon. Yes. I've, there there was Shawshank Redemption. There was a spoon, and they were able to get out of a, a, a jail cell. By maybe, the way... Maybe a poster. Yes, yeah, just, just to, to cover things, up. Yeah. I was watching Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, because it's on nonstop. Had, well, I had rented it. Really? Because I wanted a clean version of it. Okay. Like a non... Yeah. I wanted a PG version. Yeah. And Because I keep hearing it's the greatest movie of all time. And I watched... Uh, I've never seen this movie. I watched about two-thirds of it, hmm. right to where it was probably about to get super good. It was, in, it was really good. But then my my movie stopped, and it sold my movie back. Interesting. I was kind of mad. So now you tell me there was a spoon involved? Possibly, yes. There was digging apparatuses because they got out of the jail cell. Not to spoil the movie for you. Allegedly. Well, you just spoiled the movie for me. And then they crawl through the sewer. <laughs> and they describe it. It's really gross. Oh, man. Ah, jeez. <laughs> um, National Chocolate-Covered Raisin Day. In a few minutes, I will bust out some chocolate-covered raisins. You have those? Uh-huh. On hand? On hand. Today? Uh-huh. Why? From oh. the Raisin Capital of the United States, but probably the world. Fresno? Fresno, California. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I just totally guessed. And they're huge. <laughs> they're huge raisins. Huge! So they're grapes. Mm-hmm. Huh. You know what I just found out? A raisin is a dried grape. Wow. I know. You're finding out new things every day. That's why they call me the good doctor. Good job. It's Thank a you. day of growth for you. Thank you very much. We're here all day. Hey, uh, anything else going on, Terry, around the world we need to be paying attention to? There is, Matt, a violent spring storm battering the U.S., stretching from the central plains to the Midwest and threatening more than 57 million people in between strikes of lightning. It was impossible to miss the powerful storms that barreled through north Texas. At least one twister was reported near the Dallas-Fort Worth area Wednesday night. The powerful storm produced a torrential hailstorm in Plano, Texas, where hailstones the size of golf balls battered thousands of homes. The slick roads led to spinouts, hundreds of cars, trucks, faced whiteout conditions in uh, the Denver area. Hmm. Uh, Some places saw more than 20 inches of snow Wednesday. Denver's International Airport forced to shut down for only the third time in history, canceling more than 1,300 flights. At one point, close to 300,000 people also lost power in the Denver area. Wow. Remember that storm we had on, was it Monday or Tuesday? Yeah, that was the same one. Yeah, we had like an inch. Eh, And we just went, meh. The next day, Denver's complete gridlock, whiteout. We dodged it. Apparently, they get a, a juiced-up version of the storms we get. President Obama dismissed Senator Ted Cruz's proposal to patrol and secure U.S. Muslim neighborhoods in the wake of the Brussels terrorist attack as un-American and counterproductive during a press conference in Argentina on Wednesday. One of the great strengths of the United States and part of the reason why we have not seen more attacks in the United States is that we have an extraordinarily successful, patriotic, integrated Muslim-American community. Obama, who just left Cuba, went on to say... 
As far as the notion of having surveillance of neighborhoods where Muslims are present, I just left a country that engages in that kind of neighborhood surveillance, which, by the way, the father of Senator Cruz escaped for America, the land of the free. The notion that we would start down that slippery slope makes absolutely no sense. Great point. Great point. He continues on with some other points. We'll probably visit some of those later today. Yeah. Uh, moving on with the Trump cruise conflict that's been going on the last couple of days. Donald Trump continued his verbal assault on his top rival's wife Wednesday evening with a crude retweet negatively comparing her looks to that of ex-model wife Melania. On Tuesday, the GOP frontrunner threatened to spill the beans on Ted Cruz's wife's hi- uh, wife Heidi in return for an unaffiliated super PAC ad shaming Melania for having once posed uh, nude for a magazine. In return, Cruz uh, called the reality TV star a coward and Heidi denied that Trump's innuendo was grounded in reality trump then manually retweeted a supporter's message showing side-by-side image of heidi and melania Uh. with the caption no need to spill the beans the images are worth a thousand Uh. words cruz responded shortly thereafter donald real men don't attack women your wife is lovely and heidi is the love of my life great response holy cow (laughs) it's getting better well what happens when you're president let's say president trump wins yes and he's the president he's the president what happens when he's retweeting stupidity from the White House? What do you what do you do then? It's not him. It, it's if you retweet, that's from somebody else. Right. He's just passing on all, information. All I did was retweet. Yeah. I didn't even say that. He that, that's his response. Well, can when a he, guy not retweet? Yeah. He goes, oh, "That's not me. That was somebody else's point." But will that just stop? I guess. Why would it? Right. You would think it would stop. We've when never had like a social media active president. Now, President Obama, yeah. he's on there, but you can tell that it's really well, careful it's a, well, and it's measured. It's staff and, yeah. saying it. He's not retweeting in his boxers well, he does. from the when, first bedroom. When, when it, at the end of it, it'll say OB. Oh. Those are from him. Oh, really? Yeah. OB? OB. Obama? Obama. Oh. Or, B. B, or it was B, yeah. probably B.O. for Barack Obama. Or... He yeah. puts his own. He puts his initials down, saying, "This is me." This, you know, but but he doesn't do it. A, but quite it's probably, a bit. his well, is about the bracket. Yeah, and, and, and my bracket's right. getting killed. It's nothing, nothing of you know. When it's of importance, you can tell it comes from like a. a, a Has PR he ever type retweeted person. a comparison between two? No, women? no, because he realizes that's probably not the best thing to do. That's great. Uh, after two years and seventeen million dollars and the winnowing down of ten thousand two hundred ninety-two flag entries to the finalist. New Zealand voters have decided to stick with their old flag, a blue oh, banner with Britain with Britain's Union Jack in the upper left-hand corner, Southern Cross constellation on the right. The proposed new national flag kept the Southern Cross but replaced the Union Jack with a silver fern, which wow. has significance in the country. The national referendum, which ended Thursday, favored the old flag by a preliminary margin of 57% to 43%. Hmm. If you spend two years, $17 million, look through 10,000 flags, have a public vote and everything, shouldn't you change it? Yeah, if you're going to spend that much time. And then you come down to the, oh, let's just keep it. Eh, this is pretty good. Kind of a whole waste of time. You probably should just change it. They had a kiwi, which is a little bird Mm -hmm, with like lasers shooting out of its eyes. That was one of the flags. I like (laughs) that one. The NCAA tournament uh, continues tonight with the Sweet 16. Here's your team's map, Matt. The, uh, let's see, Miami takes on Villanova, Texas A&M meets Oklahoma, Maryland, and Kansas. The late game has Duke facing off with one seed Oregon. Wow. So you can watch all that tonight. That's a great night. Let's see. Do I have time to do that tonight? Probably not. <clears throat> yes, I might. Really? Yeah. Don't you have marriages to save? No. Okay. I've given up on all that. 
They're just too hard to say. That's great news if you're into basketball. Boy, Texas A&M and Oklahoma, that's going to get ugly. Duke and Oregon? Mm. Excellent stuff, folks. We will take a break. When we come back, we will be talking to the leader, truly um, one of the great uh, nutritional health advocates in the country um, who has been taking on the soda industry forever. Uh, Dr. Marion Nestle will be joining us and talking about her book, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. Interesting insight into uh, the soda world. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you've watched any sporting event, from the Super Bowl to the current NCAA basketball tournament, NASCAR races, the Olympics, you name it, and you have seen some seriously aggressive sponsorship from the leading beverage companies, namely Coca-Cola and PepsiCo. Numerous athletes are spokespeople for these products, and it just strikes, you know, as a bit odd, right? Because... Here are some of the healthiest people we know, and then they just, you know, after a good workout, just throw back a Coca-Cola, a sugary beverage. Um, it seems like it doesn't quite jive, especially when we when we already know that uh, all of that sugar and, and some of the things that are in these drinks lead to other health challenges like obesity, diabetes, and poor dental hygiene. So why are sporting events and athletes, um, you know, so into pitching these products and uh, and what is really going on that keeps perpetuating and driving this industry when we know that there are so many health risks involved. Well, our next guest, Dr. Marion Nestle, joins us. She's on the phone from New York City and tells us more about the business and threat of the big beverage industry and how, what it poses on our nation's health. She wrote the book, Soda Politics, Taking on Soda and Winning, and we're honored to have her with us. Dr. Marion Nestle, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, glad to be here, but it's Nestle, not Oh, Nestle. sorry, Nestle. I, I just I'm keep thinking related. of the drink. That's right. A little hot chocolate is big. Hey, uh, not, ta- related. Not, not related to Nestle, are you, Nestle? Hey, um, Dr. Nestle, tell us about your... Your, this really is kind of a mission for you, right? You've taken on health issues in general, but uh, the soda industry seems to be one of your particular favorites to focus on. Well, I've just written a book about it, so that's why. And the reason is that sugary drinks are a really easy target for public health advocates, which is what, what I am. I'm interested in public health. Um, because the drinks are sugars and water and nothing else and some flavoring, but nothing of any redeeming nutritional value. And people consume them in very, very large amounts. In small amounts, they're not a problem, but in large amounts, they are a problem. Um, the amount of sugar that's in them is staggering. It's just under a teaspoon of sugar per ounce. Mm. Um, and if you have a 10 or if you have a 12 ounce drink, you're consuming 10 teaspoons of sugar just like that. Wow. I mean, that's that's more than sugary cereal, isn't it? Oh, much more. Wow. And, and I mean, so that's – but that's just the sugar side. The diet beverages have salt off the chart, don't they? Salt? Yeah, sodium. No, no. 
very little. Oh, I thought they were higher in sodium and that's what no. was causing no. other issues. But when you think about the industry, the industry is is something that you've kind of focused closely to in how they market and their practices. I think you compared it uh, much to some of the practices of the tobacco companies. Well, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that a sugary drink has become a worldwide icon of America. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an, it's an astounding marketing story, and it's a story that's been told over and over and over again. Uh, the company is um, Coca-Cola particularly is brilliant in marketing um, and have made these drinks something that seems essential for sports figures, as you've pointed out. They pay sports figures to represent the product, um, and they market worldwide, and yet it's something that, again, if it's consumed in very small amounts, it's just not a problem. We're not going to worry about it at all. But it's when people are drinking liters every day or quarts every day that it becomes a real problem. It adds a lot of calories, and that much sugar coming into the body so quickly is really not good for you. Small amounts, fine. Hmm. And 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 as a health advocate, um, you probably – I mean, the marketing is extraordinary just in and of itself. So if you're a business kind of marketing major, like, that's brilliant. But one of the things you bring up, too, it seems like, is uh, who they're targeting. And the beverage industry might be, you know, kind of about race and class in its targeting, even targeting, you know, working class or, or poor minority communities. Well, that's certainly happened over the years uh, when – you want to market to the people who are going to drink your products. And as health advocacy has become more prominent, particularly in concerns about obesity and its consequences in type 2 diabetes, the people who are educated and have money are not drinking these products to the extent that they used to be. So the marketing has shifted towards people with less money and less education. And, of course, these are exactly the groups that have the highest prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes and those other problems. So the, the marketing of uh, soft drinks to low-income minorities has a very, very long and complicated history. And, in fact, I called the chapter in my book uh, Marketing to African-American and Hispanic Americans, a complicated story, mm. um, because uh, minority groups were petitioned the companies and had sit-ins and demonstrations in order to get the companies to hire them oh, wow. and, to, and to advertise in their publications in the 1950s. And over the years, the companies forged very close relationships, financial relationships, with um, community groups um, of the minority communities and uh, so that they are seen as an ally. Um, and it's only in recent years when obesity and its consequences have become such a problem wow. that things have had to shift. It's complicated. And it really is. Um it's almost kind of par for the course because it seems like there's a re- there's such a profound history of these of these beverages and the companies that are entrenched in our life so much that the the storyline becomes like Coca Cola is Americana and 
Uh, I mean, I can only imagine if you grew up in the 50s with African-American communities fighting to get jobs at Coca-Cola and then they finally get the jobs and then all of a sudden they become targets of uh, Coca-Cola. I mean, it really is a it's it's a tangled web, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not something that's simple and it requires a great deal of a skill to try to figure and sensitivity to try to figure out how to deal with it. And we saw this in New York when Mayor Michael Bloomberg attempted to put a cap on the size mm-hmm. of sugary drinks that could be sold in New York City. Um, and the, uh, Af- the major African-American and Hispanic community groups and organizations opposed what he was trying to do and supported the soda industry in its lawsuits against the city. Hmm. And it wasn't for until a couple of years later um, the, when there had been some organizing around that that other groups came in and said, oh, no, this isn't a good idea. These companies are targeting us and are contributing to the illness in our communities. Wow. That is so – it's so interesting. Um, when One of the things as you bring up the New York uh, kind of marketing or the campaign against these drinks, one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing that worked was when you just very simply delineated how much walking or and, and, and stated how much you're going to have to do to work off that 12-ounce drink. Yeah, this was the Subway poster campaign where they had big posters in the subway that said if you wanted to work off the calories in a 20-ounce soda, you would have to walk from Union Square to Brooklyn, which is about <laughs> three miles. Just um, to get rid of that sugar. Yeah, yeah wow. and, and that's, most people don't do that. Even in New York, most people do that, don't do that much walking. Yeah. So the idea that physical activity can burn off excess calories is something that doesn't work very well unless you're enormously physically active. And that's really, I guess, as, as a health advocate, you're trying to figure out a way to educate the population about it. Um, and, and is it working? Do you sense that your, your, um, your, your war or your fight to make it healthier um, or to push on the soda companies, is it, are you seeing any give? Are you seeing any change? Well, you do in the educated, uh, wealthier segments of the population, um, where obesity, the, the prevalence of obesity is, is not that all that high and is leveling off, and you're not seeing so many increases, where um, the obesity is an increasing problem is in people who are already overweight and don't have much money and don't live in areas where healthy food is available. And so it's become kind of class-based. It's, um, you know, one of those things where what you really want to do if you're doing health advocacy is to try to get into low-income communities and make it possible for people to buy food that's healthier for them. Uh, healthier food is more expensive than, yeah. um, than junk food. It, it is for lots and lots of reasons. And when people who don't have a lot of money complain that they can't afford to buy fruits and vegetables because they cost so much, they're right. Yeah. And, and and sometimes even in their communities, they may not have the stores. They may just have like kind of the little fast food stores, not the, the full markets where there might be better options. Right. And the places 
that are where food is available tend to sell junk food that doesn't have to be refrigerated, that yeah. can sit on a shelf for a long time, and that doesn't cost very much and tastes good. Hmm. Is is the industry uh, succeed, is striving? Is it growing, uh, the beverage industry, or is it shrinking? It seems like we have more people drinking water, talking about water, or other healthier drinks. Well, soda companies uh, also produce bottled water and many, many other kinds of drinks. The uh, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo both produce about 200 different kinds of beverages, um, you know, just hundreds of options. Um, and so they're pushing the less sugary options, and they're also heavily promoting the smaller cans. Well, I can't argue against either of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those are both healthier choices. Um, and then what they're really doing is shifting their marketing overseas as Americans have reduced their consumption of sugary beverages down by about 25% over the last 10 or 15 wow. years. Uh, the marketing has moved overseas. Um, and these companies are looking at Asia, India, and Africa, where, where the consumption of sugary beverages is extremely low as enormous growth opportunities. Mm. And they're putting literally billions of dollars every year into marketing and building bottling plants and doing things in those countries. Wow. Yeah. Hey, good luck to the rest of the world as the battle's coming to them. Let's take a break. Uh, We're speaking with Dr. Marion Nessel, who is the author of the book Soda Politics, Taking uh, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. She's just walking us through a lot of her work, her history um, as a health advocate and is is teaching us uh, what's really going on in the soda industry and some things we need to pay attention to. We'll be right back, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking with uh, Dr. Marion Nessel, who is the author of Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. She is a health advocate, uh, leading health advocate for better food safety in the United States. She's also a professor of sociology at NYU and a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. She was a professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at uh, New York University um, from 1988 to 2003. Dr. Nessel, welcome back to the show, and thanks for being with us. Hi, and I'm still at NYU. Oh, are you still there? Yeah, I chaired the department from 1988 to 2003. Now I'm just a professor, but I'm still there. But you're a busy, you're a busy woman. Uh, yes, we I got. Am. You know what? It's and, and I think you're. It's busy in a good way because we're taking on um, uh, the beverage companies, big soda. And, and in in a way, I mean, I guess you've, you're an educator. You just your goal, I guess, is to just give people better tools to to lead a healthier life. Yeah, I just think if people, I think healthy diets are easy. All you have to do is eat your veggies and not eat too much, and don't eat too much junk food. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I really love to eat. I enjoy food. I think food is one of life's greatest 
pleasures. And I want everyone to be able to enjoy their food and not have it make them get sick. Yeah. And and um, I guess that's part of this is a lot of us just kind of go on autopilot and just take whatever's there and, and, you know, believe whatever is being offered. But these companies, they don't just even sell soda. They also sell snacks. And the, oh, the snacks and the soda kind of go hand in hand. Well, they certainly do. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, PepsiCo is much better protected from concerns about sugary drink consumption because it makes lots of other products. Mm-hmm. It owns Lay's, for example. So it makes potato chips and snack products and cereals and other kinds of things. Um, it's a bigger problem for Coca-Cola, which only markets drinks. Does um, what's happening with these energy drinks? We see uh, the kids. It's a big kind of push. All these energy drinks. It obviously is also marketed. It seems like to younger people in a way that it just. It's all the cool stuff. It's it's all the extreme sports. Uh, what's the energy drink world? What's it doing on, on our health and the impact to the bottom line of these companies? Well, the sales of energy drinks are increasing, and they're being marketed heavily, uh, and particularly to young men, um, who are the targets for a lot of advertising of products that aren't particularly healthy. Uh, But the sales of energy drinks have not compensated totally for the decline in sales of the standard Hmm. Coke and Pepsi. Um, but they're but they're rising, and a lot of people are really concerned about them. Not because of the sugar so much; they have somewhat less sugar, um, but they have an awful lot of caffeine. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a whole other side of the beverage industry is the caffeine side. Is is it was the caffeine uh, an attempt to create a hook? Well, you know, they started out with cocaine. Yeah, but that was a so, very very long time ago. But so it has and gotten that, better, Marion. And, oh, it's gotten better, yeah. Um, and there's very little caffeine in either Coke or Pepsi. Mm. There's, there's a little bit, but very, very little. Um, so it's it's really not a problem. The only thing that's a problem in these drinks that really matters is the sugar. And again, it's just because there's so much of it. Um, the It's funny, I, I spent the last couple of months on a research project in Australia, and while I was there, the head of Coke. Australian for Australia and New Zealand made a statement that um, she didn't really understand what the problem was. If you had one can of uh, Coca-Cola a week, there was nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I totally agree. Yeah, right. I mean, but I guess that's that's different than, you know, a family, an inner city family that has five, each person has five a day because that's all yeah. they're drinking. Or young men in general who are the target audience for a lot of this, mm-hmm. who are drinking um, a couple of quarts of this stuff a day. Mm. Not a good idea. Well, and, and maybe the motives are, are a little bit um, suspect simply because of the history where, I mean, just a few years ago, there was a big scandal about these companies, you know, paying researchers to validate the healthiness of these things or the lack of health issues. Yes, that's a, another big issue of mine and, um, and something that concerns me a lot is when food companies are sponsoring research to give them the kinds of results that they can use in marketing. And the beverage companies over the last several years have 
um, sponsored research to demonstrate that sodas have no impact on health, that the major nutritional surveys in the United States that show that sodas are associated with poor health uh, are so badly flawed that you don't need to pay any mm. attention to them. And then in particular, and the one that has gotten the most publicity, is the research to indicate that you don't have to worry about what you eat. It's how active you are that counts. Mm. Yeah, right. It's just more about how much exercising you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm greatly in favor of physical activity. I think everybody would be healthier being more active. Uh, but it's really, really difficult to work off the calories in, that, are, that are in excess uh, because the way I think of it is it's about 100 calories a mile. So you have to walk or run a mile for every 100 calories of food that you take in mm. to, balance, to balance it off. And for a lot of people, that's really a lot. Oh, for sure. Um, you uh, that is so that's what worries you is if they're going to kind of skew the research and then use that to misinform then that becomes even more egregious more more of a problem yeah and these companies spend a lot of money on this research i mean coca-cola to its credit has um it started an transparency initiative in which it is now revealed publicly the names of all of the organizations and individuals that it funds. Hmm. And that has um, created a lot of response, and some of these organizations are pulling out. Yeah. They were happy to take money from Coca-Cola when they didn't have to disclose it. Now they're... They're, not, they're not so happy about it when it's been disclosed for them. Um, and it's not clear to me how all of this is going to play out. But I give Coca-Cola a lot of credit for uh, taking this initiative and following through on it. Are, are they – in the end, do you – I mean, I know there was a comparison to like big tobacco. But it seems like they might be uh, still a better community support than tobacco was. Well, I'm not I'm not sure what you're asking, but the uh, I mean obviously sodas are not tobacco because you can consume them in small amounts and they don't make any difference. Um I'm not sure that's the case with tobacco and the level of addiction is certainly quite different. But the marketing and the protection of sales is very very similar. So the tobacco industry um began by attacking the science and trying to get it to, to develop its own science. It uh, sponsored community organizations. Lots and lots of arts organizations were sponsored by uh, tobacco companies. And then it worked behind the scenes to lobby against any kind of regulations of tobacco to make sure that the federal government didn't pass any laws that would reduce that would lead to reduced sales. Hmm. So, and the, I mean, all companies that are selling products do the same things, and soda companies do these things too. And yeah. in that ways, and in that way, there are similarities. In the article, um, uh, I think it was by NPR, you, you told a story about how you went to Coca-Cola's headquarters in Atlanta and you sat and watched a movie. Um, talk to us about your experience in, the, in their version of kind of uh, Coca-Cola and America, I guess it was. Oh, it was an extraordinary 
experience, and this is Coca-Cola World in Atlanta, and um, you, it's their museum of Coca-Cola products, and there's a tasting room and a whole lot of other and a, an enormous gift shop. Hmm. Um, but the, before you can get into any of that, you are required to watch a, um, about a, a short video. And this video isn't anything about selling Coca-Cola directly. It's a video about family values and love and great moments in people's lives. And it was extraordinarily touching. Mm. Uh, there was a particularly touching vignette about a uh, soldier in Afghanistan who um, the, his family misses terribly, and they're at a ball game, and a picture of him comes up on the screen, and then he walks out. Hmm. And, you know, his family hasn't seen him in years. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Yeah, right. I mean, not one. It was just immensely touching. And so then you walk out of this video, and you've been emotionally moved. Yeah. And then you're ready to start looking at Coca-Cola. Yeah, what, and what does that have to do with Coca-Cola? Well, at the end of it, they, they're drinking Coca-Cola, <laughs> but it's very low-key. But it, again, it's the it's back to the good feeling, love, family, America. And American, and American values. Mm-hmm. I mean, hmm. really deep American values. And they do that extraordinarily well. And then you get to go and look at the history of Coca-Cola and um, this big exhibit about the secret formula. And on the day that I was there, there was an enormous troop of Tibetan monks who were oh, going wow. through. So it was just a surreal <laughs> that experience. That was. And then you exit through the largest gift shop I've ever seen, and people are checking out with shopping carts full of Coca-Cola branded products. Holy cow. Well, I mean, um, I, it's got to be scary, very- Marion, when you walk in to Coca-Cola, you'd think all of the the alarms would be going off and they would be <laughs> having security following you the entire time. Um, you would. They actually turn out to be the nicest people in the world. Mm, that's great. That's great. Well, we appreciate your insight. Um, anything, just as we leave, what's one thing that the rest of us, just everybody listening should take away? What's the one thing that if we all remember this interview would be the key thing to remember about soda and our health? A larger portions have more calories. That's all you got to know, huh? That's all you have to know. If you're going to be eating and drinking these things, keep the amount small. Yeah. Good job. Appreciate you. Dr. Marion Nessel, thank you for your time and your My insight. Pleasure. Wonderful, wonderful insight. Um, you know, it is. It's uh, moderation. Hello. And eat your vegetables, as she taught us. Eat your vegetables. Smaller portions. Have one or two sodas a week. Watch out for the sugar. It's liquid candy. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get the information you need to live longer. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Moderation. Uh, it's pretty much what we, we learned from Dr. Marion Nessel. It's the sugar, folks. The sugar will kill you, and which is, again, why, Ben, we get all over you. When you bring those Kool-Aid uh, drinks and you just drink Kool-Aid all day, 
It's it's the commercials that get me. I think. Is it? Yeah. Like the, the they, big Kool Aid thing running through the wall that that gets you. No, just like everybody seems so happy and some cool and so popular. And the so kids I have friends. If yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think well, maybe you, if I bring Kool Aid, maybe you'll have friends. Yeah. Oh well, that's one way. To do it. it, you you might. The problem is the mustache. You've got that red mustache all the time. Yeah, that just it just makes you look younger than you are. You so know? twelve instead of fourteen. And when you keep saying "Hey, Kool Aid," when you say that, that's like it's weird. I'm just thinking. I just you know might be better that you just bring some Coke. Yeah. Anybody want a Coca Cola? Hey, kid, catch. Do you ever remember that commercial? Was that over your age head? I don't know. Mean Joe Green? No. This kid brings him a Coke because he just got handed his hat in a football game. And the kid brings, hey, hey, Mean Joe, you want a Coke? And he gives Mean Joe Green a Coca-Cola. And Mean Joe drinks his entire Coca-Cola. Then hands him the bottle, I guess. And the kid walks away and he's like, hey, kid, catch. And he throws him his jersey. This big sweaty... Jersey is a moving, moving moment. Right then, I knew I loved Coke. And, and you went out. You went out to buy like five cokes. Yeah, well, I couldn't afford it. I was a kid. Yeah. But I asked my mom to buy me a Coke. It's that, that's the thing. It's marketing with these good feelings, right? That's how they get you. Well, we'll help you, Ben. We'll find we'll find you some friends. Thank you. It'll be hard, but we'll find you some. I have Kool-Aid, so if like <laughs> that factors into the equation at all, like I'm I'm ready. But I mean, you if you've ever made Kool-Aid, for example, you know there's a lot of sugar in there. I mean, cuz I tried to make Kool-Aid without sugar, not good. Well, the only reason I ever make Kool-Aid is so I can see the powder drop into the water. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it doesn't taste that good to me. I but just that, like But what is it about the the powder dropping into the water that you like? Just look, just the artistic. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. A little weird. <laughs> but you know. Um Okay. A little weird. <laughs> We're not gonna belabor the point, but that's just weird. Anyway. Nothing else. Nope, that's about it. that's all I can think of is that is one weird kid. <laughs> mom, can we make some more Kool-Aid? You never drink it, Benny. Hi, Mom. I just want to see the colors. <laughs> you can get the same effect with some food dye, right? And <laughs> just some water. No, it has to be powder. Oh, uh, you like the powder. Yeah. Okay. I guess I don't have to put sugar in it. <sighs> Let's just chalk that up right there to another weird moment with Ben Wasden. Another weird moment with Ben Wasden. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We've got a great uh, show next hour. Next hour, we're going to be talking about uh, Too Big to Know, rethinking your knowledge, and uh, maybe how, how we have to change our concept of learning and knowing. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, 
your guide on this side. Happy morning to you. National Chocolate Covered Raisin Day. I keep forgetting to go get my raisins. I've got some chocolate covered raisins I'd like to, you guys to try. I'll give uh, Ben, your, I'll give you one, and uh, Terry, you can have as many as you need. Thank you. I appreciate that. Here to serve. I just don't want you to get. Are they raisins or? They're chocolate covered raisins. Okay. They're and they're huge raisins. They're big. They're not like plums or no dates well, or no. These are raisins, and that's the, that's what we're celebrating. Prunes. Mm-hmm. Ew. Chocolate-covered raisins. Hey, great news, by the way. Apparently, um, the bomb maker Hmm. was killed in the explosion. Is that a new developing breaking news story? A new developing breaking story. They believe the bomb maker may have been one. They found DNA at the scene. Now, this is the photograph of the – there was – Three men. Three men. One of them wearing kind of a white-looking jacket. Yeah, he that... apparently disappeared. Yes. But the bomb maker, I think, was one of the other two gentlemen. Okay. And apparently they found his DNA there, oh. which usually would mean right. he's gone. There's probably more in the area. Which was a big deal because the bomb maker is the real tech and technologically advanced person in the ISIS cell. Right, and they're the ones they need. To you do stop him, damage. stop the bombs, and he apparently stopped himself. So these aren't the most stable of devices. No, ding dong, the witch is dead. That's the song. They sing. I mean, really, that's great news. And again, there's still another one at large, right? And then they're finding that there's other people that uh, that are at large that haven't been identified that they're looking for. Hmm. That also were part of the deal mm. the tangled tangled web um anyway this guy also ruined wearing a tan jacket he did i mean now i i have a great tan jacket i can't wear anymore it's a tragedy and um the story after story and the videos you see can you imagine being at an airport landing in brussels maybe going on a vacation and then all of a sudden this yeah. It's hard. It's, it's just a at, any, thing. at any moment in your life. Yeah. Somebody just decides to do something like this and you happen to just be minding your own business and you're caught up in it. There you go. And then um, uh, Ted Cruz, everybody's kind of jumping on board again, re, 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 reaffirming their belief that we need to clamp down on Muslim neighborhoods because if if in Brussels they had been more aggressive, in Paris they had been more aggressive, in some of these communities they believe this wouldn't have happened. There's also a lot of criticism of the uh, the Brussels level of military intelligence that they can try to yeah. muster. They apparently don't have a lot of the resources. They they don't function at a uh, a level uh, apparently with expertise enough to be able to actually root out these sorts of uh, insurgent type groups. And this is the this is Europe. This is the headquarters of the European Union. NATO's there. The European Union's there. Oh, and there's a whole new discussion about NATO. Everybody's uh, getting on board or fighting one way or another about that. And meanwhile, Obama's dancing the tango and everyone's upset. Right. He spent, what, five minutes dancing the tango (laughs) and now the world's just upended. It's just a weird picture. He's holding a really fit, strong tango dancer. Right. It looks like she she could really just attack him. She's a a mixed martial arts Could be. My first thought was, was where's his wife? 
This seems yeah. kind of str- Oh, wait, she's sitting at a table watching him dance. Well, she and then probably, she got yeah, up later and danced. danced with a real but tango But if you dancer. think about it, if you both don't know how to tango, you can't tango. No. You have to have a partner that knows yeah. how to tango. That's called tangled. Yes. It's different when you don't know how to do or, it. Or whenever my wife it cons me into dancing, it's just sort of shuffling around. Have you ever? I'd love to see. Do you have video about that? <sighs> no. We could post some video. She took me salsa dancing once when we were dating. Really? Yeah. How'd that go? I'm really uncoordinated. So <laughs> I love salsa. Not well. Not that kind of salsa. Oh. Yeah. It was fun. I was in a in a in a club, I guess you could call it, and everybody else there knew what they were doing. <laughs> except for the me. Yeah. Do you know what is I'm over here just kinda hey You just kinda shaking it. <laughs> trying to look cool, trying to act cool. The thing is, uh, President Obama, though, is cool enough to pull off the tango. Oh, yeah. And he didn't didn't know what he was doing. He had no idea, but he looked like he was, you know, close. Yeah. But, I mean, there's if you just look at the 17 GOP members that have been running. There's no way. Not one of them could probably pull off the tango. Well, Marco Marco Polo. Maybe Marco Rubio may have been able to pull. I, it off. I saw as we played that vi- the uh, the song. Remember, it was uh, "Lean on Me." Yeah. Except they changed a couple words to Donald, <laughs> and during that performance, you had Donald Trump and Ben Carson standing yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. They, they can't dance. No. There's no way they just sort of awkwardly shuffled around. So and, maybe we, do you need to choose your president by their ability to dance? There's there's TV shows where we could test this out. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, and somebody made a point. It was you. I can't remember that the people that love Donald yes. would also wouldn't mind seeing their president on Dancing with the Stars. Apparently not. They wouldn't I, I mind want, him on the Survivor. I want to see a more definitive study on this. Yeah. Polling Trump, Donald Trump supporters and how much reality TV they watch. And if there's some sort of correlation between that and some of the decisions they've been making. Yeah. There, there, there's a correlation. And they're still so. voters. And these are people that might not normally vote anyway. So Absolutely. is he doing a great work by getting all of these people involved? That's what he keeps saying. Exactly. And he's confused as to why the Republican Party is not accepting these new people. Yeah. It may not be the people they're not accepting. Yeah. They'd take the people if they could get them. Right. It's just their leader. It's mainly him. Yeah. They're a little concerned about what he's going to do. Oh, the tangle. A little bit of a loose cannon, if you will. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. A, of loose a loose cannon with a Twitter account. Yeah. It's the worst kind of loose cannon. Did you hear this story? Oh, this is just tragic. About the um, uh, a, a Yale doctor performed a surgery and removed the wrong body part. Yeah. I mean, that's a big deal. You go in. This person went in. They had cancer on their rib. They did. Their seventh rib. And the doctor removed the eighth rib. Oops. Ugh. You know, you, you always like, hey, I'm going to mark the leg that they're going to operate on. Okay, I'm going to mark the leg. You can't mark a rib. You know? Well, the other part of the story is that after they removed the wrong rib, then they made up some story about, oh, we didn't get enough of the yeah, rib. We, we must have not to go have taken because she had pain still. And we must not have got taken enough off. And then the guy went back into surgery and she specifically asked that surgeon not to be – he was involved. A, there's a student doctor involved. Yeah. Or no, he was recently graduated. Okay. Right? So what, you go through residency right. at that point? Right, So this was – he was still sort of the trainee doctor mm-hmm. and they made a horrible mistake. It was just a mistake. What? Can I not make a mistake once well, in a while? the mistake applied with the cover-up yeah. of the mistake by not admitting to what you did. And then going back in and performing surgery on somebody, it was just bad. Well, and the fact that that guy is a doctor of veterinary medicine. 
That would also complicate things. And dogs only have six ribs. Yeah. So when you start so, looking I mean, at that. You add all of that up. And the floating rib. And, I do believe they're in trouble. Yeah. I am not a lawyer. Okay. Just to be honest, he's not a doctor of, doctor of veterinary medicine. Oh, okay. I just want everybody to know that. But it was a better story if he was. Because Ben's going to be C95% not accurate. <laughs> see, Ben, I, I beat I'm, you to I'm it. Glad I beat I'm glad I'm to it. I can I'm see you, you out there. clearing your throat, ready to say that. It's just better if we're full disclosure on the show. Yeah, so what I'm going to do now is I will now make a joke, and then I will have to clarify that that was a joke, which will make it 100% accurate. We don't want someone sort of operating on a false premise. Well, then so we can spread. help them out. So did you hear at Yale that they have vets working on people now? Yeah. Veterinary medicine doctors? And then it would like roll back and they'd blame Obamacare. I, I can make a whole disclaimer for whenever you make a joke. And you'll make the joke, and I'll just press that disclaimer, and we'll... This joke was 95% false. <laughs> <laughs> Matt was just kidding. So that's why we want you to know we are not a news agency. No. We do, we, we do bring you news. We mention news items. But we also suggest that buyer beware. <laughs> Caveat emptor of our news or... It's like spray cheese. This product does not contain real cheese. But is flammable. <laughs> and may taste like bacon. <laughs> if you're lucky. Hey, uh, anything going on that we need to be worrying about today, Terry? There is. Thanks, Matt. House Speaker Paul Ryan avoided naming any names as he bemoaned how American politics is has devolved into a battle of insults in a Wednesday address to fellow Republicans. While Ryan didn't warn against politicians playing into voters' anxieties, uh, he did warn against politicians playing into voters' anxieties and resorting to insults. He kept his focus towards the future, pushing the GOP to avoid becoming disheartened and to rise above the petty drama and focus on policy ideas. All of us as leaders can hold ourselves to the highest standards of integrity and decency instead of playing to your anxieties. We can appeal to your aspirations, Ryan said, instead of playing the identity politics of our base and their base. We unite people around ideas and principles. Mm. Ryan then took his own advice, admitting that he has not always been right and backpedaling on ugliness. He spread that he spread in the past. He said, there was a time when I talked about makers and takers in this country. I realized I was wrong. Ryan said, adding, we should demand better from ourselves. You know what? He's setting himself up perfectly to be the next president. See what happens in the convention, right? Right. Since was a John Boehner said, I would vote for Paul Ryan as president. And then Paul Ryan's like, what are you doing? Oh, my heavens. Don't do that. Staying with that point of political ugliness, fallout continued on Wednesday from Ted Cruz's comments about surveillance in Muslim neighborhoods. Congressman Keith Ellison from Minnesota, one of two Muslims currently serving in Congress, had this to say on MSNBC. I'm from Minnesota. I'm a few blocks away from where he might be talking about in terms of Muslim neighborhoods. And I can tell you, this neighborhood is uh, full of excellent, hardworking, patriotic people who love this country and make it better all the time. I'm offended for them. I'm offended with them. And we're not going to let go of our American value system just because Cruz is scared and doesn't want to actually do the hard work of, of making America safe, but would rather just scapegoat a religious minority. Well, that was a strong opinion from someone mm -hmm. who's involved. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's a strong advocate for the Muslim world. And... We need one. Right. And we need one. He, they need a voice. You need somebody that is on the inside that understands it. So 
We're not just spewing a bunch of hooey. Jared Lee Loeffner, who shot Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, among others, in Tucson in 2011, has sued Giffords for $25 million. He is currently serving a life sentence for six murders, but claims he is innocent and that Giffords caused him emotional damage. In the lawsuit, he claims that Giffords is part of the Illuminati and that his head is full of chips and the evil empire government is controlling me. Wow. I'm I'm going to bet that's not going to go through. Probably not. That'll go straight to the Supreme Court. I read suing like what you start reading and like oh all right he's he's having a this he's is, having yeah, a tough time. Everybody has the right to sue. Donald Trump's rallies have become so hostile to media and, pro- and protesters that NPR has reportedly begun sending its political reporters to hostile environment awareness training to better prepare the for the rowdy events. NPR's training session is apparently a significantly pared down version of the same seminar they offer to reporters who embed in riot scenes or war zones. <laughs> <laughs> wow so well, they have to prep to go to cover a campaign event now so going to a trump rally is the same training basically i mean it's the same experience <laughs> yeah. as going to the front Fallujah. Of, yeah yeah Fallujah. <laughs> wow they're, minus the armor they're just preparing the, the body report. Armor. They, I, I probably the 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 training is keep your head on a swivel Look and kind of make sure of your surroundings. Don't get lulled into just being part of the crowd. You're covering the event. Yeah. And just be careful. Because yeah. when when the guy's up there on, on the on the on the stand on the mic and he's pointing back at you and calls you essentially the enemy. Yeah. Yeah, maybe the crowd's gonna think you are. Be so careful. you may want to back up a little bit. Right. And watch your back. Yeah. And if they take a protester out, take a punch. Well, you can do that too, I guess. You'll be accepted as one of them. Or watch out for the Secret Service that may body slam you by your neck. That's so scary. What's happening to America? And finally, this happened the other day. A JetBlue flight attendant surrendered to federal authorities Wednesday in New York after allegedly abandoning 70 pounds of cocaine at a Los Angeles airport, at the Los Angeles airport two days ago. Marsha Gray Reynolds was randomly pulled aside for uh, for a baggage screening on Monday and, according to TSA officials, appeared nervous, made a phone call in a foreign language before fleeing the scene, discarding her Gucci heels in the process. Oh, my heavens. So she got up there and went, uh, and then took off. And they searched her baggage, and they found 70 pounds of uh, cocaine. Random check. Let's just do you today, ma'am. Let's just have you step up here. Oh, no. And then they catch her in New York, and she's like, yeah, okay. So she's, she was a, a JetBlue flight attendant. She was? Yeah. <laughs> Emphasis on the was. Wow. Well, that's why we need to build a wall. Keep drugs out of the country. Build a wall around JetBlue. <laughs> No offense to JetBlue. Hey, we will take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. David Weinberger will be joining us. He's going to help us understand uh, how to rethink knowledge, right? Now that facts aren't the facts, experts are everywhere, and the smartest person in the room is the room. Interesting uh, change going on with our knowledge and learning in this world with the high-tech you know, tools we have. We're going to find a faster way, healthier way through the knowledge boom. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Little Paul Simon. Great tunage. Hey, are you a fact checker? 
According to Google, the search engine performs over 3.5 billion searches per day. That's about 40,000 searches per second. And our society has the ability to get answers to all sorts of weird questions. For example, from what's the name of those things on the end of my shoelaces? Um, those are called aglets, by the way. And, and to what the, what's the situation in Brussels? With all this information, one truly important question to consider, and one that you can't necessarily search out and get a great answer on, on Google, is this. What are we really learning? What are we learning with all of this information and information overload? Dr. David Weinberger is our guest today. He is the author of Too Big to Know, Rethinking Knowledge Now That the Facts Aren't the Facts. Experts are everywhere, and the smartest person in the room is the room. He now joins us live from Boston to talk to us about uh, this knowledge, uh, uh, the need to rethink knowledge. Dr. David Weinberger, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Great to have you on the show. Uh, this is it is it's true. It's overwhelming, right? We've never probably in the history of the world had more information at our fingertips, and yet information doesn't always equal wisdom or knowledge, does it? No, um, and, I, and I'm not sure how overwhelming it is. Um, I'm not overwhelmed, and I doubt that you actually feel overwhelmed, and I bet that most of your listeners, except that we're constantly told that we're overwhelmed, mm. don't actually feel overwhelmed, because we go to the sites that we go to, we ask the questions that we want, that we want answers to. We have our, most of us, I think, at this point, have developed our ways in which we get our news and uh, have more extended discussions. I think a lot of times the the discussion about uh, the idea that we are overwhelmed, uh, uh, the concept of information uh, over being overwhelmed does have a little history, and in part it's, it's due to that, but I think it's also in part due to maybe focusing too much on facts, because uh, facts are not knowledge, as you say, um, and most of what we do on the net or that we do in our life, and this has always been the case, is, has nothing to do with gathering facts. We do that occasionally, and the Internet is fantastic at it. Right. The fact that you can get this information, you're carrying it around in your pocket on, on your phone, um, is is awesome, but that for me is really just the that's just the beginning. And to think that that what if you're looking for knowledge on that, that you should look at um, where we're gathering facts, I think does a disservice to to knowledge and to um, what's happening on the net. So what? I would look other places. Uh, you know, I would look at um, discussion forums. Um, uh, Stack Overflow. If you are a, if you're a developer, if you're a programmer, which is an amazing site that millions of developers go to, where you can ask a question and an anonymous community uh, gives answers. You know, uh, how do I do this and this or that programming language? Hmm. It's, a, it's an amazing resource, but it's not about fact. It's a little bit more about conversation and discussion. So um, there's so many sites like that. And that's where I think you can see a real change in what knowledge is um, occurring. And it seems like it's kind of a – it is flowing in a conversation. Um, I guess that's the – I guess the, the overwhelm that I see is when you go trying to research an idea um, I, or my kids are trying to research an idea and all of a sudden 35,000 sites come up or sources – to go find out information, and the first six of them are marketed. Um, how do we sort through the knowledge that matters, the information that matters? Uh, 
we are still figuring that out, and it is the and it is absolutely something that you have to, children or none of us do naturally. Right. None of this is natural no. behavior. It never was, right? I mean, so that's why we have schools, for example. Um, so we do have to be care, uh, thinking really carefully about uh, how we teach our children how to use this awesome and bewildering at times and dangerous at times resource. So, yeah. And, and so there's a lot of people thinking about that. Um, but there's also every site, um, this is maybe too much of a generalization, but not that much. I mean, every site has ways to guide you to the information that it wants you to, to find. And if the site is on your side, then it's not giving you corrupt uh, information that somebody has paid them to promote. And, you know, Google and the search engines, the big search engines, um, do a pretty good job of marking um, the, the results that they're giving you that are, in fact, advertisements. Hmm. Uh, they do a pretty good job. Um, and there are sites that absolutely do want to fool you. I mean, you know, they give you information as if it weren't paid, and they get very, very good at doing that, unfortunately. Yeah. But how, you know, how, do, you fi- how do you find the information that's reliable? It's something that we need, need to learn, and we talk about this amongst ourselves all the time, and it should be a very active topic in every classroom at this point. Right. But it's also something that sites have been dealing with now for 20 years. How do we get the right information to our users? Um, uh, there's not an easy or single answer to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does You actually have a hierarchy that you mentioned, um, a data, information, knowledge, wisdom hierarchy. Maybe walk us through that. What do you mean by that? Well, that's actually an idea that, uh, that comes out of, um, from the 1990s, and it's an idea I think, I think is fundamentally wrong. So it's a hierarchy that if you go to business strategy meetings, you see put up on the board all the time. Um, and the, the idea, which I think is a wrong idea, the idea is that data is all of the data in the world, and then you refine the data, mm. you filter it, you get information, you refine the information, you get knowledge, you refine the knowledge, you get wisdom. And I think basically none of that is true. And the thing that's most you can have all the information in the world and not have any knowledge, and you can have all the knowledge in the world, and you just you just a know-it-all. That has right. nothing to do with right. leading to wisdom. Um, for me, the the really important way this goes wrong is it's that's described as a pyramid with data at the bottom and wisdom at the top because you're filtering um, at each step, and that's how we had to do things when knowledge was communicated and preserved on paper. Paper is expensive; it's it's bulky. Um, and so we've had over the over the centuries, um, we've we've pursued knowledge by having to filter out most of the stuff. Or very few manuscripts actually get published, and very few of those make it into a library. Just hmm. physically, you know, it's expensive, and the library would have to be the size of you know multiple football stadiums. So we've managed knowledge by reducing it. And now for the first time, and we've paid an enormous cost for doing that. I mean, obviously there are benefits, but we've paid a big price because all sorts of voices that should have been heard but didn't have access to the presses simply weren't heard. Right. I mean, a quick way to put it is, uh, you know, old white men basically decided in the West what we heard. Voices were squelched um, with good intentions by the old white men, but, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, And now we don't have, we don't have to do that. We don't have to filter on the way in. We don't have to reduce everything. So if if I'm a blogger, just a quick example, if I'm a blogger and I want to post my top ten list of great resources about economics, online, you know, whatever, or politics or, or anything, I can do that and I'll put in my links. But 
so I, I have filtered it. That's exactly what I've done, right? I've gone through the mass and I said, here are the 10 that are really good. Right. But I haven't removed anything. It's not like a publisher who won't publish a manuscript and now you can't find it. That's the old type of filtering. On the Internet, we filter not out, but we filter forward. So when I put in those links, that list of 10, all I've done is shorten the number of clicks that it takes you to get to those 10. But the other million things I could have cited, they're still there. Mm-hmm. And you can find them in a search. You can find, you know, somebody else links to them. Yeah. So we no longer have to filter out. It's no longer a reductive idea of knowledge. It's an inclusive idea of knowledge. And I think that fundamentally changes everything. Oh, yeah. Isn't that interesting? And um, the book, your book uh, that you co-authored, The Clue Train Manifesto, I mean, that, how, when did that come out? Ten years ago? Oh, <laughs> uh, 2000. Was, was it 2000? I remember reading that on an airplane because I had studied dialogue theory and the importance of communication and, you know, kind of group think. And I thought, holy cow, this is the turn of understanding. So, so maybe explain to us what, what, what are the skills that we need in today's day and age to manage the flow of information and, and the, and really, because like you were saying, it's almost a conversation that needs to be had. Um, through this process with other like-minded people in chat groups or or other groups. Maybe explain what are some of the tools that would help us facilitate our understanding better? Well, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's, um, it's the big question. Yeah, huge so, question. Um, for one thing, the um, recognizing the importance of conversation is a way in which humans make sense of their world. Right? right, right. That's what talking does, right? It's really, really important. And it's very different from the old idea in the age of paper, where just because of the nature of paper, a single person got to speak, and you read it, and you couldn't respond. And was, Books are not a conversational medium, and there are, obviously there are advantages to books, but... And this is something, by the way, that Socrates noted 2,500 years ago when he was arguing against literacy, writing things down. It was you write something down and you cannot have a conversation with the author. Mm. Recognizing the importance of conversation. Second thing is also recognizing that the Internet is a global space. You can talk with anybody around the world, but we are all local creatures. That is, our... It's not, it's not even our set of beliefs that are relatively local, local to your nation, to your community, to your faith, to your parents. It's also just the mechanics of talking, how you have a conversation, um, how long you're allowed to talk before somebody can interrupt, how off-topic you're allowed to go, how, how funny you're allowed to be, and in what sort of humor mm-hmm. can you tease. You, know, you think you're just teasing, but somebody from another culture, which might actually just be you know, 100 miles away, or but it might be uh, 5,000 miles away, right. you're, te- you're teasing, they think you're being abusive, and you are being abusive in their culture. Right. Um, so recognizing that conversations are very delicate, and the mechanics of them are governed by local rules that, that you inhabit, you don't even recognize them. So being um, aware of that and deferential and careful and respectful and treating people with dig- dignity are all requirements simply for having a conversation. Um, if you are providing information, um, you're putting up a site, then one of the things I think to keep in mind is that in the old days when resources were constrained, 
if you were a library, you would filter on the way in. Right? So you would decide which books are going to make it in, which ones aren't. Um, on the Internet, it's generally both better and less expensive to include everything. Put everything in. Don't decide ahead of time what mm. your users are going to be interested in because you, nobody can know what people are going to be interested right. in. That's true, huh? You don't need to edit it as much. Just get it out there. Get it out there and then give them good ways of, of, of finding it. You know, um, and, yeah, you and know, sorting it, yeah. Uh, let the, yes, let them sort it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. methods that they can do that easily. Uh, yes. So in a, you know, I've, I've spent about the past five years in library technology and physical libraries, which are you know, I, I love, but they have this terrible constraint, which is – Every book has to go on only one shelf. <laughs> and yeah. that's not how books work. That's not a natural thing for books. It's not a natural thing for all the stuff at Amazon either. That's right. Um, they, they, people think about how to cluster things differently based upon their, their needs. Um, so if you can avoid making a single choice about what category to put something in and to let somebody do a, even a complex search where they're specifying things that matter to them but you could not have anticipated would matter to them. That's a far, far better thing to do, and that's very common on the on the net now. But it's a very different way of thinking about how the world is organized. That's right. We were about efficiencies, huh, with paper, I guess, and, and typesetting where you had to actually set all the type. Use your words carefully. But now you're saying it can be abundant. Get everything out there, and it doesn't – everything doesn't have to be in its place. I mean everything can be where it needs to be and just make it sortable, accessible. Exactly. And even the idea of thinking that things have a place. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. They don't. Um, it depends. Things place, it depends upon what you are trying to do. Uh, yeah. If you're in a grocery store and they have you know, the normal way of sorting, but you don't want to see anything that has gluten in it, or you don't want to see anything that has salt or sugar, or they can't sort it all those ways for you. Right. Everything has to be, you know, but you can. Electronically, you can. Digitally, you can. So the information uh, world can is is maybe in a way more fit for the way our brain actually operates. Um, it, it well might be. Okay. Um, it has an important effect on knowledge, though. If I can bring it back to yeah. that, because in the West, um, ever since the Greeks, and this is I think clearest in Aristotle, we've had the idea that to know what something is is to know its essence, which is a definition. Yeah. So we are the rational animals, and birds are the feathered bipeds, you know, two-legged animals mm-hmm. that have feathers. Um, and that's, it, that's what knowing what those things are. It's knowing the single place of things in the, in the grand structure of the universe. And so if, in fact, the, the reason that we've had to sort things physically into single places is simply that they're physical. They can only be in one place at a time. Then maybe our idea of knowledge as finding the single place of things in the grand logic and order of the universe, maybe that idea arose from the limitations of the physical. Hmm. And now that things don't have to have a single place or a single definition or a single way of finding them, it changes our idea of what constitutes knowledge. And I think, personally, I think in a useful way. Oh, I do too. And I mean, again, it could... Yeah, thinking out of that kind of that um, constricted physical realm, all of a sudden you might be able to have a thought 
that can create this spark of synergy or whatever you want to call it, energy or an opportunity that hasn't necessarily existed in a, in a certain kind of environment. Um, powerful. Let's take a break and continue this discussion after the break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. David Weinberger. If you've ever heard of the book, uh, The Clue Train Manifesto, he was a co-author of that 15 or so years ago. He also um, wrote a, recently an article in The Atlantic, To Know But Not Understand, David Weinberger on Science and Big Data. He was interviewed there, and um, they picked his brain, quite honestly, and we're going to try to do the same thing. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, understanding knowledge and information um, and maybe the new, the new realm, the new world we need to see it in. Stick with us. We'll be right back. We aren't caught up in your love affair, and we'll never be royal. It's a one in our blood. That kind of love's just ain't for us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us, Dr. Uh, David Weinberger from Boston, and um, he is uh, enlightening us about, you know, information and the information age, uh, really about some of the changes we might want to be um, at least thinking about when it comes to knowledge, uh, you know, uh, aggregation, assimilation, evaluation, how we go about learning, how we go about thinking in this new age, Um and I think he's just opening up our minds. Dr. Weinberger is a senior researcher at the Berkman Center at Harvard University, and he's been a philosophy professor, a journalist, a strategic marketing consultant, internet entrepreneur, and the Franklin Fellow at the U.S. State Department. Dr. David Weinberger, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, it really is. In your your side of this, you can hear your philosophy, uh, your uh, your philosopher coming out. But it really is maybe a time and an age to start reevaluating how we see the world, how we see life uh, now that we have access to so much information. Um, and ta- talk to us just a little bit about um, what, what, what are some of the changes you see happening? What are some of the changes that we might want to start opening our minds up for uh, in the future? Well, I think you you put your finger on part of it when you said that this may be a more natural way for our brains to work. And I, you know, I'm not, I don't know anything about brains, so I don't know about that. But it seems to me that we are are already in, in many ways, a more nat. Despite the fact that it's the internet and it's all digital and none of that is natural. Yeah. In some ways, I think it is. So if if you're old enough, if and you have to be pretty old at this point, and you remember. <laughs> newspapers um, as the thing that you read in the yeah, morning. Yeah, every morning. Right? Every morning, that was it, or the 22 minutes of the evening news. But, so you get in the newspaper, they still work this way, the printed ones, and you read an article and you're really excited about it, uh, whatever it is. You know, it could be physics or it could be politics, it could be Kardashians, doesn't matter. <laughs> you're reading it and it's just, it's, you've got ideas, you've got questions, you want to know more. But you couldn't. You got what they put into that rectangle on, right. the, on the page, and that was... That was it. I mean, there literally was no place else you could go. You could go to the library, maybe, and, but you're not going to get the current. No, right. It's, it's now that would that thought that you only got what they gave you, or the encyclopedia. Answer, that was thirty yeah. years old. 
exactly. Right. Britannica, yeah. uh, which was the, you know, the, the, the best English <laughs> language, it came out once a generation. They would revise it. Right. And you know, it had 65,000 articles, which is a lot. Yeah. But if you look at editions over time, it, one of the historical biographies, um, I looked at Oliver Goldsmith, you know, a British writer. Every edition... It gets shorter and shorter hmm. because they, they have new stuff they have to put in, and they right. can't get much bigger than they are. So yeah. uh, we're throwing out information. Uh, they didn't want to do it, but they, every edition, they throw out information to make room for more. These are crazy things. We would ne- Nobody sat down and said, you know, it would be really good. Let's have a medium where you get exactly what somebody else has written, and you can't ask any questions, and there's no place else to turn if you become curious about hmm. it. And you know what? Every edition, let's throw out a whole bunch of information. Good information, but, you know, we don't have room. This is not a good system. And it no longer, now the idea that you would read something online, news or whatever, and don't understand it or have an idea or want to say something, uh, say say something that the world conceivably, everybody in the world could read, uh, it would be unbelievably frustrating to be able to do that. Yeah, and it, that seems to me to be a much more natural way of doing things. And, and don't um, you so, think, not to interrupt, but don't you think that? Um, I mean, it is impacting society today because the youngsters are doing that. They're reading everything online. They're finding out stuff. They're questioning institutions. They're questioning, you know, the need for an education. They're uh, they're actually they're thinking. They're not they're not just in this lockstep model. Well, I don't think it's an accident, just as exactly as this is happening. At the same time, um, behavioral economics and, and the like are discovering that our brains are unreliable instruments, that left to themselves, our brains will uh, look for confirmation of what we already believe. They will, um, people tend to, it actually turns out the less you know about something, the more convinced you are that you're an expert. And this is just, it's like optical illusions. It's just something your brain does because mm. the brain was not created to, to do what we want it to do to understand the world. So it, while I completely agree with you and I'm very enthusiastic about what's happening to knowledge on the net because people do connect and they do talk with one another and they ask questions and they, they chip in what they know. Um, and it's become conversational, which I think is just a huge yeah. step forward for us. At the same time, we have to be very careful that our brains aren't fooling us into believing um, falsehoods that we we like to believe. Right. That fit our bias. or Yeah. yeah right. Confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very dangerous. Um, I have a friend named Ethan Zuckerman who has a book called Digital Cosmopolitans. Um, and he is, he shares the, my enthusiasm for the Internet. He loves the Internet. But he is a pretty serious researcher, and he has good evidence that even though the Internet lets us connect with anybody around the world, yeah. all around the world we're not doing that. Um, we are sticking with, with our, uh, yeah. people who are like us, right? Oh, that's uh, true. Whatever you, however you want to define that, mm-hmm. we talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're not broadening our horizons. We're just deepening our hole. 
So that's a really nice way of putting it. I'd want to maybe not be that extreme about <laughs> yeah. it. But we, 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 do. We, we like what we hear, so we keep going to that more. Uh, yes. Mm. Um, and you're just warning us, be careful. I, I am. Um, I also think, though, that this complaint about the Internet, which I take very seriously, I think it's one of the most serious of the complaints, um, maybe that is that we, we listen to people who are like us. We hang, it, it maybe misunderstands how understanding itself works, at least as I understand it. So that um, if you... Oh, I don't know. If you um, are, let's take politics, you're uh, on the left, you're on the right, doesn't matter, whichever one. And there's a Supreme Court ruling, and it's technical, and you don't understand exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. Does it help, or does it, you know, does it help my side? You are very, if, first of all, you're very likely to go to a site that shares your political point of view. Yeah. Um, now, in one sense, that's bad. But on the other hand, no, of course you are. Of course you are. You're not, you know, if you're, if you're sort of a Fox News person, you're going to go to a Fox News type of site to understand it. And if you're, uh, you know, MSNBC or whatever the other one is, um, you'll go to that side. Because understanding is contextual. Understanding takes something new and assimilates it into an existing context. And that's how understanding, that's, that's how understanding works. Yeah. It's not surprising, and I don't think it's, nece- it's, it's necessarily evil that we hang out with people who share our beliefs and our values, because that's how we understand things. Right, right. So there's a benefit, but it's limiting. Yes, exactly. Both those things. Yeah. Um, So our expectations that we would all become global citizens um, from the early days of the web, uh, maybe those are unrealistic. Uh Uh-huh. Um, it would be more more realistic to hope that we will, in addition to seeking out beliefs that are like ours and people who are like us, we will also learn how to listen to people who are not like us. Yeah. And that is a, that's a hugely important thing, but it's also really, really hard to do because you don't have the context you do, mm-hmm. to understand. No, and yeah, and you almost do need you need a little guidance on the way. Uh, I wish we had more time, David. This is um it's so enlightening and important of a discussion. Again, everybody go look up the Clue Train Manifesto and and the great works of uh, Dr. David Weinberger. I mean, really, uh you're a forward thinker on this and um I think it's great that we stretch our brain this way. David, thank you so much again for being with us. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, Folks, it's a tool. It's a great, powerful, incredible tool. And know your bias. Know your tendency. And we we need the support groups that we love to go to. We also need to be willing to stretch and look into other areas to broaden our minds as well. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, come back, and wrap up this first hour or second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. At first, you could only listen to what's on right now. But with the new BYU Radio app, you can listen to pretty much everything BYU Radio has ever aired. Check out over 200 episodes of Top of Mind, 300 from the Kim Power Stilson Show, and 600 shows from the Matt Townsend Show and BYU Sports Nation, each available anywhere you go. Download the new BYU Radio app, available on all iOS, Android, and Amazon mobile devices.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, speaking of uh, chaos and uh, the Internet, if people around you are running and screaming, don't be alarmed. It will probably be happening all month long. If you haven't witnessed the mayhem of the NCAA tournament before, you're in for a treat. Tis the season of bracketing, betting, and basketball. We sent one of our producers, Leanna Tan, right into the heart of the mania to get inside the, the inside scoop of March Madness. you but i think something fishy's going on everyone seems overly excited wherever i go people at work aren't actually working and i can't seem to escape the smell of pizza so i decided to do some researching and i think i found the culprit march madness march madness is a time of year for the ncaa college basketball tournament where fans fill out a piece of paper called a bracket where they guess game by game who they think will win each round right down to the final two teams CNN says that March Madness pulls in more national TV revenue than any other postseason sports franchise at $1.15 billion. It costs employers an estimated $1.2 billion in unprotected workers and creates a 19% increase in pizza orders. What? 50 million Americans participate in March Madness pools. But I don't really get it. What's all this madness about? Why do so many people participate? After all, did you know that the probability of someone winning a perfect bracket is one in an extremely large number that I don't even know how to read? I don't get it. I had to investigate. And my first step was to find someone who could read this extremely large number to me. Hi, you're a math major. Do you know how to read this number? I have no idea. So we have some statisticians here. Can any of you try to read this number for me? I have no idea. Once you get past billions. What's after trillion? Quadrillion? Uh, after quadrillion, I'm not sure. Quintillion, maybe? Who knows? We found a mathematician in our midst. Can you read this number for me? Oh my goodness. A million trillion. All right, we found a math professor here. Can you read this number for me? Um, <laughs> nine quintillion, two hundred twenty-three quadrillion, three hundred and seventy-two trillion, thirty-six billion, eight hundred and fifty-four million, seven hundred and seventy-five thousand, eight hundred and eight. One in that number of people can get a perfect bracket. Then it will be me. Okay, so your chance of winning a perfect bracket is one in over nine quintillion. That's mad. I don't want you to become a victim of this madness. I want everyone to know what they're getting themselves into before they catch this bug. So, I sought out a professional to give us the details. I'm here with a statistician, Garrett Page, a bracketologist of March Madness. Why do you think that the chances of winning a perfect bracket are so small? Because there's just so many games, right? I mean, if you think about each game being a coin flip, 50-50 chance each game, 64 games. And so the, the, the probability of getting all those right just on a coin flip is one half raised to the 64th, which is already a very small number, right? And then think about and then you have to go to the next round and the next round and the next round. Those are pretty small odds. But luck must have been on my side because I was able to find a bracketeer who had actually made it through the first day of March Madness with a perfect bracket. What are the chances? Brian Hartman, assistant professor in the statistics department. Somebody told me that you had a perfect day on your bracket. I did. So actually the first day of the tournament this year, I got all 16 of the first 16 games right. Someone told me that about one out of every 10,000 brackets were right after the first day yesterday. 
So how do you feel having a perfect day? I feel lucky. No more talented or smart than I felt two days ago. Do you think that your profession as a statistician helped you at all? Yes, it helped me to realize that it was completely dumb luck. After meeting Brian, I realized that there were some people that actually do look out on their brackets despite the odds. So I decided to search out the seasoned bracketeers themselves. How long have you been doing brackets? So I was about eight years old, so that's about 50 years ago. How old were you when you started a bracket? Three. Easily three years old. It's a family tradition. Every year, my whole family does a bracket, even the little babies. How old are they? The youngest one was probably two. They just show them pictures of the mascots, and they pick their favorite one. What's the secret to a perfect bracket? I would probably just choose all the schools I was most familiar with. So there's a method to it? Yes, very loose and based off of nothing but familiarity. One year my sister picked it on the mascots. It's all a game of chance. It's not a, an exact science to say the least. I'll go with your heart, I guess. I don't know, I like some schools more than others, you know. A little bit of guesswork. I've learned numbers, I tried the number method, you know, ranks. That never works. I tried my favorite teams, that never works. So, now I do this strange thing where I just first thing that comes to my head. Do you have any advice for our fellow bracketeers? Get lucky. Be pure. Just love one another and it'll all be okay. Have you ever gotten a perfect bracket? Um, no. Uh, no. Not in this lifetime. Nope. I have not ever won. It's impossible. Never have. I'm still a March Madness bracket virgin. If it's only based on luck and there's a very slim chance you'll win, why do you even bother? Is this for fun? Recreation. Get a good laugh. So you can say that you're better than your friend. Bragging rights. Same reason you go golfing is you get one shot and it feels like you can actually do well with it. So you just keep doing it again and again and again. So why is it called March Madness? Makes your friends mad when they lose to you. Never know who's going to beat any team on any given day. It's a lot of games in just one month, so it's like madness in so many games. Because anytime you get a group of guys or girls together to try and predict the future of a game that's based off of ten guys chasing a ball on a wooden court, it's going to lend itself to insanity. Mad skills plus madness because you can never predict what's going to happen. So how do we cure the madness? Wait for next year? I don't think it's a problem. It has to be cured. I don't know. Maybe Maybe there's like a vaccine for it or something. I don't know how you cure the madness. I mean, I'm not a doctor. Maybe one day when someone gets a perfect bracket, hopefully it'll keep being crazy because that's what makes it so much fun. So what I gathered is that March Madness decreases productivity and invokes pride, contention, and addiction. So I still don't get it. Is there anything good that comes from March Madness? It's something you can talk about. It's something you can socialize about. I think really it's just a chance for like everybody to come together over something because like it's all across the country. It definitely brings me and some of my roommates closer together. It's been a good bonding experience for us. Well, there you have it. March Madness in a nutshell. I hate to say it, but despite my efforts, I couldn't find a cure to this madness. So I guess you'll either have to contract the madness yourself or confine yourself until April. But... I guess it's not an entirely horrible thing after all. So, happy bracketing, and don't forget to thank your boss for that unearned paycheck. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. 
It's Thursday, folks, and National Chocolate Covered Raisin Day. I still, I still have not had those raisins. Uh, I, I brought some raisins. I, keep, I was just in my office. I just am not thinking of eating right now. I'll just handle the show for like thirty seconds. I will. I will run and get them at the next break. It will be very easy. I have large chocolate covered raisins. The raisins are huge. Yeah, you made it. You showed your hands like they're the size of a boulders. They're 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 big boulders. Yeah, chocolate covered. So I'm, I'm raisin expecting boulders. something from Grand Fresno, Grand. the raisin capital of America. The breadbasket of America. That's in the Midwest. The raisin basket of America. There you go. Mmm. So uh, celebrate National Chocolate Covered Raisin Day, of course. Hello. You don't want to miss that. Uh, today also um, is uh, the day that I think today's the day that Ben gets uh, his P, uh, his um, HR interview. Oh, great for yeah. all the violations. He doesn't know about it yet, but oh. they'll be down with security. That's a standing everyday interview. <laughs> do you do that a lot? Like every day. Why? Just checking up. I didn't know they were doing it that often with you. Well, apparently you you account for like two days a week, mm-hmm. but then Liana and Kaylee account for three days a week. Yeah, they file a lot of complaints. Yeah. But they should, I mean... Stalking is stalking. T- Terry is yeah. Terry is about one day a week. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we actually then we've organized it pretty efficiently. We've spread it, it seems out. like we have it so all that covered. None of yes. us have a huge burden, right? Hey, um, today we'll be speaking about your tone of voice. Mm. It's as important in your relationships as what you say. If you yell something, your tone, it might be more important the tone than like. So, are you going to come? Yeah, I'm coming. The tone. So the person is going to be attending this thing, but apparently they're not happy about it. Yeah. So if you ask your wife, um, so do you want to go on a date this weekend? And she's like, sure. Hmm. Does she want to go? Because she said she does. Sure. Yeah. See, I don't – I think I should be personally accountable just for the exact – definition and meaning of the words I use. Yeah, you want it literal. Not the tone. The tone should be something I am free to express any which way I feel needs to be expressed. My wife does this. She goes, your tone. I don't appreciate she your tone. She questions your tone. I mean, yeah. And I go, I don't think you're qualified to interpret my tone. Well, she is. And then there's this discussion about tone and who actually should be doing that. And she feels that she's qualified. I'm not sure. Well, she is because she has... She doesn't, have, she doesn't have documentation. That's what I'm just saying. Well, she doesn't have like a degree in mm. tone. Exactly. That she's married to you mm. and she she is sensitive to now, tone. There is some on-the-job, yeah. per se, experience that she has acquired over <laughs> the years. But still, I think that I should be given the benefit of the doubt. Just go by what I say, not how I said it. Has your wife ever watched Oprah? No. Uh, probably once or twice. Then yeah, she's probably not qualified. No, I mean if you watch Oprah, you're all over that. <laughs> you know, because Oprah has taught us this. Oprah University. Oh, uh, Doctor Brian Bauckham will be joining us. He's a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Utah. He's going to teach us, based on his research, tone. Uh, it's pretty important. Mm, Get your tone right. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, are you going to reject his data? 
just because it's not, not just because really, tone's not important. Not really to you. reject. Just personally, within my sphere of influence, it won't be. Um, it'll be ignored. I'll really? just go. Eh, that's one man's opinion. But if somebody says, "What are you doing?" Yeah. with that tone versus, "Hey, what are you doing?" Hmm. Those are different meanings, right? No. You still are, are, are questioning what are you doing. Well, but but I'm also actually implying some idiocy. In I it. think we go down a, a, a very <laughs> rough and rocky road here as we try to interpret oh, tone. You are such a man. Yeah. You it's are interesting. such a left brain man. I just don't want to be hung out to dry by my emotions as I'm speaking. I'd rather my emotions be something that, that <laughs> exist but not be interpreted. Or held against me, really, is what I'm getting to here. Yeah, you don't want to be. You don't want to pay a penalty. <laughs> I don't want to be held for accountable. your inability to control your emotion. Right. Okay. Great. That makes sense. There we go. We figured least, it out. At least we're being honest. At <laughs> least we are being honest. Hey, um, uh, transit worker, check this out. Finds a bag with fifteen thousand dollars of cash in the middle of the road. Hmm. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. In fact, it's the darnest thing because I lost a bag. Of fifteen thousand dollars in a, in suburban Philadelphia. I don't think you did. Well, I may have. No, no, no. Five no, percent no. accurate, right? Absolutely. No, I, I really don't think that was your money, Matt. I don't. I'm pretty sure. Why would you have fifteen grand? Why wouldn't in I? like bills? Just why wouldn't I? Just stacks of cash. Are you kidding? I'm a talk show host. <laughs> I'm talent. <laughs> we carry that much just to. Get a sandwich. That's just day to day carrying pocket mm-hmm, money. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. And I lost it in Philadelphia somewhere. The suburban Philadelphia transit worker found a bag loaded with fifteen thousand dollars in the middle of the road, and it and turned it into police. The Philadelphia Inquirer reports that Bob Tracy was driving home from work Monday night when he spotted the black bag. That black bag. Mm. Mine was in a black bag. Right. Tracy says he thought it was a purse. Yeah, I call it a man sack. And um, but then he opened it and he saw a dozen or dozens of crisp one hundred and twenty dollar bills, exactly mm-hmm. as I left it. The sixty one year old southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority worker immediately called police. Upper Darby Superintendent of Police Michael uh, Chitwood said to turn in that kind of cash, uh, you know, it makes Tracy truly a good Samaritan. Oh, it does totally. I'm glad. I mean, We've seen the video of, say, you know, an armored car has some problem on a freeway and mm-hmm. money's flying everywhere and people are out there fighting for going the money. Nuts. Uh, Tracy says his wife assured him that it was the right thing to do, even though he was uh, he's now not going to be $15,000 richer. Hmm. Hmm. But what do you want? $15,000 or a clear conscience? Well, I'd like my $15,000 back. It's not yours. We already discussed this. What do you mean? You keep that in the bank. You don't just walk around with just fistful you, of dollars. Why do you think I wear cargo pants? <laughs> to carry your cash? Yeah. Do you not do you not believe in banks? No. Hmm. I mean I do, but I like also carrying a little light petty cash on me. Fifteen thousand dollars? Exactly. What are you purchasing that you need that kind of kind of money for? Stuff. Stuff? I I buy, buy Raisinettes on the way to work? I had to buy you guys some raisinettes for today. <laughs> To celebrate Raisin Day, chocolate-covered Raisin Day. I buy lunch mm. at the creamery. That's like a couple dollars. I mean, you don't need 15 grand. I'm, I mean, the creamery. My cleaning. The, the rates have gone up, but. <laughs> oh, you guys. We're going to hear about that one. You don't even care. About your money? Right. I if mean, it was yours, maybe, but it's not. So, yeah, no. 
I mean, your one identifying characteristic there is it was in a black bag, and you're like, I had a black bag. Yeah, mine was black. That's not your money. No, and it's 15000 That was another... That, mine was exactly that. Ish. Ish. So what, Give or like take a ten, buck. Ten bucks? And mine had crisp. I, I, I spent mm. all night ironing mine. $100 bills and $20 bills. <laughs> I just left it right in the middle of a road. Okay. I'm in Philadelphia. I can't remember the Last road. Week? I can't remember the road. You were here. Yeah. But, How were you in Philadelphia? Uh, You'd need a couple days to make that happen. Have you heard of a red eye? Yeah, but you're, you're so not the person to take a red eye and then exist the next day. Whatever. You would take the red eye, complain almost the entire day of how tired I'm you are. I'm not even going to talk about it anymore because I'm bummed because <laughs> I'm out 15 grand. It is a sad day for you. But that guy, he was a hero. Bob Tracy is a hero. Oh, yeah. That's a cool story. That I mean, and I hope that I get my money. If I don't, I just hope it goes to a good cause. So, how much money is too much money just to find and keep? Well, at what point do you have to go? All right, I'll turn this in. I probably would have kept the fifteen grand. See, yeah. That's too much money because all of a sudden it's like, why did this guy have fifteen grand all of a sudden? Especially you, you're in college. You have no. Reason to have fifteen grand at any point? This Show up in a car. Yeah, we well, find it hard to believe that you'll ever have fifteen grand. Fifteen grand might be a huge day for you. It's, I would say, anything more than a more than fifty dollars. Well, no, turn it into the police. You're yeah. not going to go to the police if you find a hundred grand or a hundred dollars on the ground. You're not going to take that to the police. Okay, but if you find, you know, a bag full of cash with a gun, yeah, and some drugs in it. Well, why are you adding other things? We're just talking about money. Why does this have to turn into a whole thing? just trying to make it more exciting. Okay. (laughs) Well, if you turn in the drugs, they're not going to ask about the money. But they'd be kind of concerned about the gun. I'd turn in the gun and the drugs. And are they going to believe you if you walk in there with a gun and drugs and go, I just found this? I just found this right here in the middle of the dirt. (laughs) What's that that thing in your cargo pants? That's my money. (laughs) It's like $10,000. Really, where'd that come from? I don't know, but here's the gun and the drugs. And here's the big bag it was all in. I don't need all this. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. How much money is too much to keep? keep? At what point do you have to turn the money in? Just just for your own conscience, for your own... I mean, like you're saying, is it $100? Is it $200? Yeah. Do you look down and go, I'll just keep that? I think that's just very personal. Do Do you look around and like really quietly... Did anyone lose any money? I oh, always, no one said anything. I keep it. I always look for closed-circuit <laughs> TV cameras. Well, there's that. And if there aren't any of those, yeah, because you don't want to like be running away with the money, and then all of a sudden it's like a gotcha. Yeah, it's one of those TV shows. Gotcha. And, and they're like, wow, you have no moral compass at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't want to look stupid on the internet. No. It's <laughs> a great question. Think about it, folks. See, that's what we do on this show. We get to the meat of the issue and ask the questions that need to be asked. And even if they don't need to be asked, yeah, we ask We're going to ask them anyways. Because we want you to think about things you don't need to think about. Sometimes. Even if they shouldn't be asked. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, questions you asked yeah. there, Ben. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to you, Terry, <laughs> and run and go grab the Raisinets. Do that. Uh, here's Terry with the headlines. Thanks, Matt. While in Argentina, President Obama partook in some local culture. Did the tango with a professional dancer during an official state dinner. Michelle Obama also had a partner as she performed the tango also. Obama's critics watching back home were outraged that Obama was getting his groove on so soon after the Brussels attack. 
And they said as much during an appearance on MSNBC's Morning Joe. I think there's no doubt that people would like to see a little bit more stagecraft and a balance towards decisive action rather than business as usual from the president. This is from Bloomberg Politics Managing Editor Mark Halpern. That was a tremendous mistake. Baseball games and tango. That's inconsistent with the seriousness of today. The president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, agreed, as he also appeared on the show. So critics against President Obama. Uh, Bernie Sanders is tied with Hillary Clinton among Democratic voters, according to Bloomberg Politics, a poll reported by Politico, of people who have voted or will vote in their state's Democratic primary caucus. 49% report that they support Sanders. 48% say they support Clinton. 3% of respondents were unsure of who had their vote in hypothetical matchups with the Republicans. Both Clinton and Sanders beat Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. However, against John Kasich, only Sanders came out on top. Kasich leads Clinton by four points in this poll. So that shows, well, hypothetically nothing. Uh, also, this going on, an investigation by the New York Times found that the National Football League's concussion research was incomplete and far more flawed than previously known. The league has stood by the research despite the fact that it left out 100 diagnosed concussions from the studies ranging from 1996 through 2001. Hmm. According to confidential data obtained by the New York Times, some of the head traumas left out of the papers include severe injuries to quarterback Steve Young and Troy Aikman, who are two named players in the NFL. Uh, The committee reportedly used the incomplete data to make concussions appear less frequent than they were in reality when prompted officials acknowledge that the clubs were not required to submit their data and not every club did, adding that the missing cases were not intentionally met to alter or suppress the rate of concussions, even though they did. In other news, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys this week said it's absurd to make any connection between football and concussions-related conditions like CTE. Hmm. So Jerry Jones is out there saying, this is ridiculous. You see the studies, and then there's concussions. There's no direct link, so it's absurd to say that there is a link. Well, and Steve Young and Troy Aikman, they look fine. For now. Right. We'll see what happens as the years pile on, because that's what happens as you deteriorate as you get older. Yeah. And then at the end, if you did, you donate your brain well, to science and they find out you had Steve CTE. Young quit because of head injuries. He did. And he had to wear that helmet on a helmet. Remember yes. that big puffy? Had like an eggshell type yeah. thing on top. So he looked like a mascot. He did. But he was safe. Yeah, from something. Uh, don't mind reloc- uh, if you don't mind relocating to limestone Maine. In order to live through a nuclear blast. Yeah, yeah. Right? So Dave and, and Sue Prentice have just play, have a, just the place for you. They're selling their 17-acre property, a former missile launch site from the U.S. Uh, Army program, oh, cool. Project Nike, complete with three missile silos, two of which are still accessible. Uh, they brought the site in 85 because the former missile assembly and testing building was ideal for Dave's car restoration business. They then added a two-bedroom home and turned the former 100-person barracks into a three-bedroom apartment. But they're now ready to part ways and say 10,000 square feet of underground space storage for missiles that were removed after the site was shut down cool. in the 60s would be a great for living or doing some hydroponic gardening. I know you're big into the uh, hydroponic huge. gardening. It would also prove useful if North Korea or zombies ever attack. So if you're looking for a, doom, a doomsday castle, you can get this property for the low, low price of $300,000. That's a deal. Technically, the owner says it's valued between three hundred thousand and five hundred thousand. So you're probably wow. looking in the middle, but still. But plus, it was a, it was a site of a Nike uh, missile program. Yes, which is where the slogan "Just do it." No, oh, just nuke it. No, just no, nothing involving the shoe company. It just happened they used the name Nike in the sixties. Okay. 
before really no re- no relation no relation but you know a doomsday castle where are you going to find one on, on the market it's huge totally great point for the low low price great of point i'm on it plus the hydrophonic garden I'm totally on it. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. Brian Bauckham will be joining us, and we'll be talking about the importance your tone of voice plays when it comes to your relationship and your communication. It's uh, just as important, folks, as what you say. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Stick with us. Helping you live longer and love stronger by working on your tone. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, sometimes what you say just isn't enough in relationships. Have you ever been in a conversation where you thought you said the perfect thing but still didn't dodge the glares, tears, or screams of the other person? In relationships, it's not just about what you say but how you say it that will save you from sleeping on the couch. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Bauckham, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Utah. And he says that psychological practitioners and researchers have long known that the way that partners talk about and discuss problems has important implications for the health of their relationship. He's here today to talk about some recent research that he's been doing that has found that your tone of voice is as important as what you say. Dr. Bauckham, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. You bet. Honored to have you on. This is, um, to me, uh, just one of my favorite topics, communication between uh, people. And really, I guess in your research, the tone, the tone matters as much as the words. That's right. That's right. Um, Yeah, what we've uh, been wanting to understand is um, when you look at couples trying to handle problems and you see them coming in for therapy, um, you know, really trying to figure out uh, what it is um, that's not going well and how to help people uh, recognize for themselves what needs to be different. Um, And and what we've been finding is uh, exactly what you mentioned um, uh, just a second ago, that it's uh, it's really a combination of things. It's what you're saying, it's how you say it, um, and it's um, you know it's uh, it's both uh, how that comes across to your partner and and what they make of it. What tone is you know it turns the turns the game around? Is it is it a tone of anger? Is it a and and how do you measure the tone? Sure. So um, what we've been looking at is uh, most specifically, we've looked at a number of things, but the things we've looked at uh, in most detail uh, are, is what we hear is pitch. Um, so how high or low somebody's voice is. Um, and this has been measured a whole bunch of different ways, um, and that's actually part of why we're so interested in this particular part of tone. Um, but we use, a, uh, we use a computer program to do this. It's one that actually anybody can get a hold of. It's called Pratt, P-R-A-A-T. Um, and it's, uh, it's a um, computer program that uh, returns what's called the fundamental frequency. So it's, um, it's just the frequency of somebody's voice. It's how fast their vocal cords vibrate, and that, that creates what we hear as pitch. Hmm. Um, and so what we've found uh, having to do with pitch Oh, are you there, Dr. Bauckham? We've lost you for oh, a second. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry we lost you. There you go. Um, 
Yeah, so what we found actually is that pitch cre- uh, communicates a lot about emotional intensity uh, or engagement or kind of overall arousal, that kind of a thing. Um, and it's, it's the kind of thing where um, there is no one particular answer. Um, you know, there's one, no one right way, there's no one wrong way mm. um, to, uh, to communicate uh, in terms of pitch, but it's really context-dependent. So um, we've looked at things like um, when couples present for treatment, and these are, these are really distressed couples um, who are kind of at the end of their rope um, and, and coming into treatment for, uh, for one um, last-ditch effort, what you find um, is when you ask them to talk about their problems, um, it's actually healthy for people to be emotionally invested, emotionally engaged. Um, you know, if you're, um, if you're talking about a problem, and really this is kind of your last-ditch effort to, to improve your relationship, the, um, it it's, doesn't bode well for your relationship if you're not seeing any emotionality come across mm. in those conversations. Yeah, because that communicates, like, indifference or that they're not in. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's resignation. It's, it's maybe having given up or, um, you know, gotten to a place where people feel hopeless. Um, and that's contagious. It, you know, the, when you see folks um, in, that, uh, in that kind of place prior to beginning treatment, um, they really have a difficult time uh, doing well um, over the long haul. Hmm. It, wow. What a really um, – because I do a lot of work with couples teaching them how to communicate more effectively. And, I mean, that that tone is if, – if all you could do is just speak with tone, uh-huh. it would be fascinating because a lot of times I see um, somebody might speak with a higher pitch and a faster rate. Yep. And yep. and it creates more intensity. And then you can almost see their partner start reacting to that intensity. And then it's almost like they catch that level of tone and they'll up it. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then all of a sudden you can just see the tone go up. Is that what you yep. saw in your research? Yeah, we do. Um, we, we've looked at that in a number of different ways. Um, and couples who are coming in because they're having difficulty in their marriage with the marriage per se. And we've also looked at couples... Um, who are coming in for treatment for other reasons. Um, the one that's coming to mind specifically is a study we did where um, couples are struggling uh, with um, uh, the wife and the couple having breast cancer. Hmm. Um, and it, it uh, again, it you know, it um, what you're saying about people catching the tone um, that absolutely happens. It's it's something that happens. It looks like actually for a lot of different reasons. Um, there's some really nice basic research on uh, voice tone, um, actually, that um, looks at its evolutionary roots. Why, why is it that we do this? Uh, you know, where does it come from? Um, and it turns out that it's, it's a really basic part of communicating uh, that a lot of social species do. Um, and the, the reason that people think this happens is that... Um, when you're when you're thinking about um, the ability to communicate distress uh, related to survival, um, an auditory cue, hey, something dangerous is happening, uh, can be communicated over a much larger distance hmm. uh, than a, a visual cue. So it, it turns out that uh, a lot of monkeys, pigs, all sorts of social species do this. 
Um, and what you're saying about it being a very basic part of communicating, this is actually true um, for us as humans from very early on. So um, it's one of the primary ways that um, babies and parents communicate before babies have language. That's true, huh? Because, yeah, you might not even use words. It's really more about your tonal quality. Are you a higher pitch? What's, what's the pitch? That's right. That's, That's right. It's That's so right. true. I, we, we just had our grandbaby over, and uh, you don't even need to use words. You just, you just <laughs> right. make funny tones. That's right. That's right. That babbling, that, that's called infant-directed speech, and that's actually a really important part of engaging with a little one. Hmm. Um, you know, it's one of the things that is not present um, in things like postpartum depression. Um, tone tends to be much flatter, uh, uh, particularly for moms, and that, um, you know, that looks to have downstream consequences. Babies develop cognitively a little bit slower. Um, and part of the thinking is, is there some of that um, really important social engagement that's lacking. Wow. Yeah, cause maybe, yeah, maybe it doesn't draw the attention out of the baby like it needs to. Yeah. Uh, and with couples, um, you know, about these two studies, um, you're absolutely right. You know, when you've got a couple talking about distress, it does tend to cycle um, very quickly. You know, one person being aroused, evoked, uh, and the other responding in kind. Um, mm. And uh, we've seen that happen um, in a couple of different ways when, when couples have kind of a shared problem, um, uh, you know, in their relationship. Um, that, that cycling is, um, you know, can result in escalation and uh, a conflict getting much bigger um, really rapidly. Um, and that's, that's um, again, is, is not great for couples. Uh, you know, people wind up um, often saying things they don't mean to say or saying them in, in ways that are harsher yeah. uh, than they intended. And maybe even wondering, how did we get here? Um, let's, Absolutely. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Bauckham. Um Brian, I want to come back and have you talk to us about can you learn this as an adult? Is this something we can learn? And is it gender specific? Is one of us better at reading the tone of another? Um, stick with sure. us. Interesting stuff. More with Dr. Brian Bauckham from the University of Utah, uh, professor of clinical psychology at the university there, and uh, understanding the power of tone in your voice when it comes to your relationships. Stick with us. Helping you love stronger, folks, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. I believe there's a strain of goodness running through the songs of each decade, each style that comes along. Join Ron Simpson on the Tantera Hour, where he shares all types of good music. As we've explored the music of all styles and all decades, I've just realized I've probably neglected the pop music of the 90s. And Ron will also introduce you to some music you've never heard of. Then to finish off today, there's a kind of a party song called... The Tantara Hour, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. Hi, Spencer Linton of BYU Sports Nation. I heard Jerem wanted to voice a promo, and I said, Hey, why not me too? All right. BYU Sports Nation now airs twice weekdays on BYU TV. Live at noon Eastern with an encore at 6 Eastern. I kind of like this. Spencer, this is a one-time thing. Yeah, but didn't I sound good? Well, yeah, for a higher-range voice. What do you mean a higher-range voice?
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Brian Bauckham from uh, the University of Utah. He is a an assistant professor of clinical psychology there and has been uh, talking to us about a recent study that he's been doing and other studies around voice and tone and the impact it has on you know getting through conflict and, and strengthening relationships or the impact it would have on a conversation even. And uh, Dr. Bauckham, welcome back. We're so uh, appreciative of you being here. Oh, thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, talk to us about, the. Are, are there certain tonal qualities that are better for relationships than others? So I don't know that there's a particular tone. It just depends, like, yeah, like you were saying. It depends. Um, you know, the, the flip side to the cycling that we were talking about just a second ago uh, when talking about relationship problems, when we've... Um, looked at issues, a uh, couple talking about uh, breast cancer and concerns about breast cancer, um, you actually find a very different pattern, um, which is that the um, that uh, when men and women are, are talking about this issue, men um, really have a, a, a tendency to want to stay calm. Hmm. Um, and... Um, you know, to the to the extent actually uh, that that's possible, that looks to be really helpful uh, to be able to talk about um, you know really scary issues, mortality, sexuality, um, you know, unconcerned uh, about what this is going to mean, huh. uh, you know, not knowing what the prognosis is, um, and so so in that case, um, it actually looks like it's very helpful. Uh, for the partner who is experiencing breast cancer to be able to talk about it in a really evocative way and hmm. for their partner to hear it and be responsive, um, but but to be able to stay in a range that, that does look calm. Wow. Um, but but so, then, but then yeah. I would assume, I mean, I could almost hear some women saying, this seems like this doesn't even bother you because <laughs> you're, yes. you're so calm yes. about this. You should be, why aren't you, why aren't you falling apart? That's right. That's right. And so that's, I think that's, um, you know, what you were really alluding to at the beginning. Um, the idea that it's really the combination of both things. Mm. So Yeah, you have to say um, what you're feeling too, right? That's right. That's right. And so in the, in the kind of therapy um, that, that I do and that we do here over at the U, um, that's one of the things that we really work on. We work on uh, one of the big things that we try to help couples do is this thing we call empathic joining. Um, which is which is the ability to communicate emotion in a way that really facilitates being together um, and what's being said. Um, and the the thing that's so tricky about it is is that it really um, it requires both partners, both spouses, to be willing to be vulnerable, mm. um, to open up about um, you know scary emotions or emotions that feel uh, that can feel threatening or intimidating, um, but to be able to be in it together. Uh, is is one of the things that we really focus on. Which is uh, an answer to the question that I guess it is learnable. It's something we can sit down together and learn. I mean, it might, you know, it might be humbling. You might need to be super vulnerable, but you can learn to kind of uh, uh, to harmonize and and can you know join up our emotional conversations and our tone. Absolutely, absolutely. I think so. Um, and, uh, yeah, so with, with tone, um, uh, one of the reasons that this is one of the particular parts that we study is it's something that we can all hear. Um, and we're all actually very good at being able to say, yes, I can recognize my own tone going up, somebody else's tone going mm. up, all of that kind of stuff. 
Um, what I think is more challenging is, you know, what we've been talking about in terms of the back and forth. Yeah. Um, that happens so automatically and it happens so quickly um, that, that, like you were saying earlier, it's, I think it's really easy for couples to get to the point where they wonder, how did we get here? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, seemed, it felt like it started so innocently and all of a sudden we're, um, you know, this feels really intense. What, what happened? It may not have even seemed like you may have noticed the tone, I guess, maybe on like a subconscious level and responded to it and not even it not even been intentional. Like you didn't even notice that's what you were responding to, but you just knew something wasn't right. And then that then you got to go somehow and sort out what caused the, you know, the side street. Why did we take that side street? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And that's one of the ways that we try to teach. Um, you know, sort of a, I guess you could call it a form of emotional intelligence Mm. um, in communicating is, um, uh, you know, trying to help couples recognize those circumstances that pull for that kind of really rapid escalation um, going down the side street to help them recognize that um, and to interrupt the tendency to get into that um, kind of automatic you know, back and forth kind of a thing uh, so that they can, can have the conversation they want to have and more effectively deal with problems. Yeah. Hey, uh, we've got about a minute left. What would you say for the rest of us kind of, you know, loafers when it comes to voice <laughs> and tone, what would you say that we should be focusing on? If we want to be an attentive partner, uh, you know, a, an effective listener, what's like one thing that we could do today to improve our ability to hear the tone and manage the tone? You know, I think the the two things that I would say are, one, um, is just to think about, um, you know, when you're trying to manage your tone, just to remember that whether uh, you have kind of a a high tone or a low tone, um, or you're even trying to control your tone, that communicates information, and it's information that we're aware of. Hmm. Um, So even if you're trying really hard uh, to contain it, sometimes it can sound kind of brittle, and, and people pick up on that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, um, I, I think, um, again, part of what we try to communicate in awareness of those situations is just some self-awareness. Um, this is happening now. Uh, you know, my partner is communicating something. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think part of my encouragement, too, would, would be um, just to try to have some awareness of that. Mm-hmm. It turns out that that can often be really successful in helping p- people break the automatic cycle and just slow down a little bit. Yeah, I love that. It seems to put us in a higher brain, maybe the prefrontal cortex, when we're actually thinking it out instead of just Absolutely. reacting it out. Interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate uh, appreciate uh, this insight. Again, Dr. Brian Bauckham, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Utah. Thanks again for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. You bet. And great tone. That's awesome. I mean, it's so it's so subtle, Brian, but it's perfect. Good job. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, Dicker. You bet. Awesome stuff. Tone, man. Who would have known? Who would have known? You got to pay attention to the tone. Well, I think we all did. <laughs> You've all had somebody say, uh, what did you say? Can you say that again? That didn't come out quite right. We'll take a break, friends. When we come back, we'll check the tone of our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going on. Uh, in their neck of the world and what's going to be coming up on their show today. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
we haven't coined the phrase, but you're kimifying everything. Everything I've seen you do has this beautiful Kim, powerful Stilson brushstroke <laughs> across it, and I think that's perfect. Guess why people love Kim Power Stilson? It's because she sits down with the guests that you want to hear from and puts her own personal spin on the story. On this show, we talk to really cool humans who talk about good and share wonderful solutions that change people's worlds. Tune into the Kim Power Stilson Show at 3 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. Time now for the Parent Previews Movie Guide. I'm Rog Gustafson. The young Messiah wades into the uncharted waters of Jesus Christ's childhood, a segment of biblical history that's only given a verse of scripture in the Holy Bible. The movie opens with Jesus' family living in Egypt. After Jesus raises another young boy from the dead, he is looked upon with skepticism and accused of having mystic powers. About this same time, Joseph has a dream and feels a need to return the family to Nazareth. Now the group avoids the terrible Roman soldiers and they manage to arrive safely, but Joseph is still concerned for his son. I know this is in Alexandria. Do you miss it? No. Do you? I don't think of it like that. But it was the only home that you ever knew, and this is so quiet and isolated. We're safe here. No one knows what I've done. And you must never tell anyone. Of course, the bulk of the script in The Young Messiah is fictional, although Catholics will recognize some details from apocryphal writings. Yet this movie still exhibits reverence and respect for its sacred subject matter. Now, parents will want to be careful, however. Confrontations with Roman soldiers are frequent, and the violence is more explicit than was necessary. Scenes of stabbings and crucifixions may be too much for young audiences. The Young Messiah is now playing in theaters. It's rated PG-13, helping parents make confidence in the mature Choices, this is the Parent Previews Movie Guide. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Finding the perfect music to toss it to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Today we got Spencer and Jason again. Hello, gentlemen. Good. Did we just walk into like uh, the movie <laughs> Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Yeah, exactly. Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I'm be honest with you, Matt. I, Come I'm on in. This. I'm digging this. Are you liking this music? Isn't yeah, that just you calming? Can't mess with the banjo. You no. know what I'm saying? Uh uh-uh. uh. No, you can't. It's just there's something so calming about it. Like you should be rocking in a chair. Yes. Yeah. It's like (laughs) whistling through your tooth. It reminds me of getting on Pirates of the Caribbean and that that, the beginning part where you're Uh, you're floating through uh the little restaurant area before you get to the drop-off. Exactly. You just took me in my mind to Disneyland. Yep. See? Wow. That's what it reminds me of. That was in, that was incredible. I thought I thought somebody I thought Spencer would have jumped in on that one and started singing. Oh, I'll be there in April, Disneyland. Will you? Yep. Wow. You taking the baby? We are taking the baby and the four year old. It seems like the baby's a little too young for this. Well, that's why you bring grandma and grandpa. There you go. No, but you placeholders. Need the, you need the baby though in order to take advantage of some of the opportunities to ride rides. Though. Absolutely, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> this is what the people the people that don't have children do not understand. Yes, it's like you, you can just kind of get the fast pass, but it's a baby. You, the baby can get you out of everything. You know what I mean? You can be in a meeting at church. And you're like, oh, I gotta go. My baby's making those noises again. <laughs> 
Uh, we didn't hear anything. Uh, no, it was there. I, no, I plainly you, heard it. You'll, you'll believe me. You do not want me to stick around. <laughs> That's a good thing. How old is is your baby? Let's see. Jet is Jet. Four. He's coming up on five months. Oh man, Jet is his yeah. name. He's coming up on five months. And, and then you have a four-year-old uh-huh. as well. His uh, name is Jax. Jackson Jack. Yep. Jackson Jet. Do you spell Jax with an X? Yep, J-A-X. Of course and, you do. And Jet, J-E-T-T. That is a cool, those are cool names. What, uh, what? I know, Matt. <laughs> I know you were trying to decide between Jet and Garth, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess you went with Jet. We decided to keep with the J theme. That's good. Jason, do you have children? Uh, four. Wow. You must be a Mormon. <laughs> why, why, yes, Matt, I am. <laughs> I have six myself. See, speaking of names, uh, I have two boys, two girls. And Ooh. My boys are named after a very popular late 70s, early 80s TV show. Oh, really? Bo and Luke. Really, uh, the, the Dukes. Dukes of Hazard. That is, that is not, and that is not a joke. That is legitimate. Now, the, the thing is, we had Luke first. Okay. So it, technically, it's Luke and Bo, but it just sounds better to say yeah. Bo and Luke. Bo and Luke and Duke. And then you're, you have a daughter named Daisy. No, but I'll tell you, when we had our daughter, because like I said, two boys, two girls. Everybody was telling us you have got to name her Daisy. <laughs> and then, and then, had had we had we done that, we probably with our last child, which was the girl, we probably would have. Called her Jesse. Ooh. <laughs> In all honesty, we probably would have done that. Well, or Cooter. <laughs> Cooter, probably not. Probably not Cletus. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we decided not to go, but Bo and Luke, named after Dukes of Hazzard. So when you're pulling up in your minivan, is this the oh, music yeah. you play? So good. Mm. My, my orange Dodge Charger. <laughs> with, with, the, with the Dixie flag on yeah. it. <laughs> I bet that goes down really well as you're heading into L.A. <laughs> Cruising into Disneyland with the yeah. Dodge Charger. That is fantastic. <laughs> Confederate flag on the top. That is so sad. What an image, man. What an image. And then Daisy Duke kind of ruined it because now they've named those short shorts after her. Yes, yes. Wait, yeah. is that ruining it? Oh, man. Spencer. Well played, Spencer Linton. Spencer, come on. I know. That was, that was uh, yeah. Totally Redact true. Redact it. Redact it yeah. from the record. No, we'll edit that out. Just to keep it clean. Hey, um, you guys, uh, I, I wanted to ask you a crazy question about this. I know you guys used to watch uh, Scooby-Doo a lot, right? Absolutely. Yes. So a woman led law enforcement in California on a high-speed car chase Sunday driving a van that was painted like the mystery machine. <laughs> nice. Right? And officials say, um, which was the van of that they used to ride around in. And the chase began when police attempted to stop Sharon K. Terman who was wanted for violating parole. Terman allegedly fled police through the city in her unique vehicle. She ran through a red light, nearly struck four vehicles, according to police deputies, and then listen to this, sped down the freeway where she allegedly got up to speeds of 100 miles an hour. The deputies then lost Terman along the interstate, and they lost the mystery machine. Oh, my hey. It hadn't been for those meddling kids. Exactly. Ruh-roh. Ruh-roh, raggy. She got away. She still has not been found. Here's the thing. It's not like the the mystery machine is something you can be incognito. No, you know what I mean? Not like at all. Like that's going to stand out. It's like, hey, I think that's the mystery machine. <laughs> yeah. Because it says mystery machine on it. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? 
I mean, you, you got to call in up to experience and you move on. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It was about the meddling kids, wasn't it? If those darn meddling kids hadn't been there. <laughs> Didn't you hate the ending to those things? I was always a little disappointed. Old. I always liked the guest stars, like when they had like Batman and Robin show up. Mm-hmm. That and was cool. Didn't they have the Harlem Globetrotters? Oh, and for sure. The Harlem Globetrotters did like Gilligan's Island as well. The Harlem Globetrotters did everything. But yeah, the Harlem Globetrotters came on Scooby Doo. I think Kiss was on there at one point. How did the Globetrotters get on the deserted island? I don't remember. And more importantly, how did they get off? And why didn't they take the rest of the uh, the castaways? Well, honestly, would you take them with you? They were a bunch of loons. Those this people. A, that's a valid point. Those people were crazy. Yes, you are not. Up. You're not bringing them back to I civilization. Ginger and Marianne are the only two that are still uh, among us right now. Are they really? I think so. You know what? She was my first girlfriend. Which one? Both. If of it's them. always the Ginger and Marianne question. I I always wanted Ginger, but I never felt like I could actually have her. <laughs> I always felt like Marianne was more my style. Was Daisy Dukes out of your league? Daisy Duke was my second girlfriend. <laughs> And then my mom said, quit looking at her that way, <laughs> which was – that made me feel shame. And then I, right then I just gave up TV. Daisy Duke. <laughs> oh, boy. Hey, guys, you doing your show today? We are doing the show today. What, what, what are you going to talk about? We're going to talk about something that you would love what? as a psychologist. What? Okay? And that is enjoy the moment. Mm. Rather than being blinded yeah. by the future constantly, right, which is what a lot of sports fan bases get involved mm-hmm. in, right, right. It's like, oh, it's going to be great next year, the next five years. Why not just step back and be like, hey, it's pretty cool right now. Just, just enjoy. The, they're in the they're in the quarters, no semifinals of the uh, uh, NIT. Yes, just so enjoy why? this. Even more than that, though, we're going to give you every reason why you should enjoy this BYU basketball team, other than the fact that they're in the NIT final huh? four. Cool. There are some really unique, cool things happening or that have happened this season, more so than I thought. Yeah. Whoa. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, I love that idea. So we're going to do that with Blaine Fowler, our dual threat BYU TV analyst. We'll talk some spring football (laughs) as well. Of course. Okay. And Mark Durant, the always comical former BYU basketball star and current BYU radio basketball analyst. Good stuff. Yeah, man. That's a great show. We're ready to go. And Jason's there. I'm here. Jason, are you going to still talk to him about um, braces and caring for braces? Um, probably not. I saw I saw Jason the other day uh, just out in the hall ish area, and um, actually, who's near? He, we were in the restroom. We, we met in the bathroom. And oh. uh, we didn't meet there. We why just is it, why is it we, that is always the case? We, ran into each we other. happened upon each other. Yes, but Jason is just a stud, and I, I just I want everyone to know that he is so. Cool. I mean, he's Jerem stud too. Not no competition here. But Jason just is the real deal, and I'm. It's always fun to have him on. You you are you are very kind, and I appreciate it. You're the man. And Spencer, um, we love you as well. Thank you so so much. And we will edit out the Daisy Duke comment. <laughs> Mostly for you. Okay. Listen. Mostly for my ratings. Listen. Can I can I just have a say here for one second? Sure. Really fast. Okay. Why is it okay? For girls to wear swimsuits, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's like this horrible thing if their shorts are above the kneecap. Great point. I don't get it. Mm-mm. I agree. But they're not However, swimming in their jeans. That's true. That's very true. I'm just saying, like, people, like, from societal, like, standpoints, yeah. like, yeah, swimsuit, that's okay. Look at those short shorts. Those shorts are too short. What a hussy. <laughs> <laughs> 
haven't heard that term for a while. Yeah. Nice. You know, we're going to leave it right there on hussy. <laughs> Guys, uh, have a great show. Uh, maybe don't use the word hussy on your show. <laughs> Thank you for leaving oh, it on my always show. Always a pleasure. Good stuff, gentlemen. Have a great one. Thanks. Knock him dead. That is funny. He just used the word hussy. Should, Edit I, the, should I have used some? T- yep. I wish you had used the dumb button. Okay, right there. Pass the eight second. Eight second rule. Ah. Anyway, here's a story for you that just falls into bad the boys, bad, boys, bad boys category. Again, we try to help the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, today, a would-be robber tries to stick up a cab with a deputy behind him. Police say a would-be robber in Pennsylvania had some poor timing when he pulled a gun on a taxi driver with a sheriff's deputy behind him. The Berks County uh, Department or deputy approached the cab after it failed to move through a green light. Surveillance video from inside the cab shows the deputy cruiser pulling up behind the taxi. Shortly after that, the passenger aims a gun at the driver and demands money. And Deputy Terry Eli approaches the cab and asks if there's a problem. Seeing the gun, Eli draws his firearm and orders the passenger out of the taxi. The cab driver can be heard telling Eli, you're a lifesaver. 18-year-old Victor Martinez Herrera was arrested. One rule, always remember, if you're going to rob somebody at gunpoint, always look in the behind you for a sheriff deputy. I wonder if crime rates increase after our segments on... Well, they shouldn't. They should just be more efficient. We're trying to help. Anything wrong with that? Hey, as you know, we always like to end this show on a hero story. Uh, here's a hero. By the way, that cop's a hero for and that, you know, saving that man's life. But there's another hero in Oklahoma, an English teacher named Steve Waddell, an English teacher named Steve Waddell. He's a 49-year-old school teacher, and he wrote a letter reprimanding irresponsible parents and inept lawmakers for the struggles he's up against in his job. Weddell says that uh, although the sentiments in the letter have been brewing for some time, the last straw was, was when budgets got cut right after school activity buses um, uh, got rid of the school activity buses because they didn't have the money to pay for them anymore. And um, all of a sudden, Waddell, a faculty sponsor of the student council activities at his high school, said he couldn't take it anymore. Teachers all over the world have responded positively to Weddell's letter, saying that they know exactly what he's talking about. Weddell says he goes above and beyond for his students, as evidenced by the list of extras he keeps for them in the classroom, such as blankets for when they're cold. Weddell writes, I love my job. I love your kids. I call them my kids. Often they stay at school with me for an hour and a half after the bell rings because they don't want to go home to you. Weddell criticized parents for neglecting their kids and criticized lawmakers for whittling down the education funding and wasting taxpayer money. Weddell ended his letter by telling parents to vote for leaders who will help teachers educate and nurture the children they're trying to serve. So he is our hero of the day, Steve Weddell, a teacher in Oklahoma who just said it like it is. Folks, uh, these are your kids too, right? Let's see if we can make it easier on them. And, you know, get out there and vote. Choose uh, people that are going to take care of the children and uh, enable and help people to be healthier and stronger and learn. Interesting stuff, folks. That's the show. We can't do it without you. We'll be back again tomorrow with more ideas, more tools for you. You can go to uh, find the BYU Radio app for iOS or for Android. You can also look us up on iTunes or TuneIn. All of our old shows, hundreds of them, 
Um, wonderful topics, great information to help you live longer and love stronger. Until tomorrow, folks, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.